Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode 11. A lot to talk about today. How are you going, pro? What's news? Not much, Bogues. Just one day at a time, my friend. Just another day in paradise. You enjoying this all-star break? Going for a vacation? Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to um, I'm gonna sunbathe outside and, you know. Scare off the kids. Hopefully, I don't smell hot bacon by the time I'm done with it. So, that's <laughs> what I'm going to do. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know if you just saw, but real quick, the NBA has sent, I don't know what the number was. It was like 30... Maybe it might even be over a hundred cease and desist letters to local night spots in Atlanta using the NBA's image and logo. Of course. Yeah. It's a, it's a bad so what t- are they doing? Trying to do parties and stuff? I assume so. I assume parties, strip clubs, working girls, whatever. I mean, it's a tough time with COVID. The NBA should just give them a pass in Atlanta. You know, those girls need to make their money. There's not, not a lot of flights flying in there. So it'll help the local economy, I think. Do, do they get bailout checks and things and lo- like no interest loans or what's the deal on that? <laughs> I have no idea, but yeah, hopefully it helps the local industry there, the NBA All-Star. Weekend usually, usually on a normal year outside of COVID brings in um, a lot of Instagram models and influencers and, and the like, so uh, we'll see how that goes. But anyway, we have, we have some good news. I, I received a pretty funny email um, from a fella that runs Pod Status, so pro. Okay. Rogue Bogues, our last 30 days... Check this out. We're position four in the category of sports in Estonia. We're position six in the category of sports in Korea, the Republic of. So these are all category of sports. We're number six in Lithuania, number seven in the United Arab Emirates, number nine in Australia, according to pod status, uh, number 10 in Egypt, number 14 in Nigeria, number 21 in Finland, number 35 in Hungary, and number 36 in Qatar. So kind of random. I didn't think we had fans out there, but it's good to see some some countries that I've never even visited following the pod. You sure this isn't one of those guys who said he was gonna, he's the prince of Qatar and, and he wants you to give you a social security number and you know in exchange <laughs> you'll get better ratings? It could be. <laughs> I haven't sent him anything yet. Okay, just ask. The pod status, I guess, is a pretty known kind of podcast view counter i guess but you know who know who knows these days but it's it's kind of a random email to send with some random country like number four in estonia fantastic hopefully there's more than four sports shows so. <laughs> any coaching jobs in estonia I'm, I'm i'm on the first boat out so just let me know yeah that was uh, a little bit of good news to start the podcast with it's always good to get a little pat on the back from some random countries that we've uh, never been so thank you for everyone out there listening and we need to get a, we need to get the US up there, man. We're not getting enough US listeners. I'm blaming you for that because I'm I'm here in Australia. You're the US kind of correspondent. What's going on? I mean, look, I'm out of work. No one talks to me anyway. No one calls me. I mean, what do you expect? I mean, <laughs> the price is right. I think I'm I'm paying you to be on this podcast. So, I mean, if you were trying to get someone who could influence, I you know, besides the donut shop, I don't think I'm influencing anybody. That's why you're here, pro. That's why I love you, man. Like you, the Australians love you. Um, good banter, but you're not a you're not a influencer type that I'm just putting on to try and you know create numbers because of your uh, influence in in the community. Not, uh, let's let's leave it that way. I, I like it. I like it as it is. But let's get let's get rolling. Some big news out of Atlanta over the week. Lloyd Pierce fired. You know, not a great coaching record. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm sure you do. But um, fill us in on on what went down there. Well, Bogues, this is, you know, it has a lot of layers to it. Like right on top, the, you know, Lloyd went 65 and 120, you know, over his two, uh, two and a half years in Atlanta. And, you know, we'll get to get into this later in the podcast with young coaches that had no coaching experience taking their first NBA job. But it's a tough job, especially when you're going to rebuild 
And in my opinion, like you can't win games with that with mediocre talent. You can win games with mediocre coaching. It's done all the time. But mediocre talent, and I'm not saying mediocre because they do have players that put up numbers that are decent players. But when you don't have great talent, it's really hard to win games. You know, they they built a, around a young nucleus of Trey Young, you know, DeAndre Hunter, Kevin Herter, John Collins, you know, guys like that. Then they brought in a bunch of veterans like Bogdan Bogdanovich, Rajon Rondo, Gallinari. You know, they brought in um, – they also brought in Chris Dunn. Capella. Most of which yep. – yeah, Capella, yeah, in a trade uh, last year. And a lot of the guys were out uh, a substantial amount of time. Those young guys really does they don't influence winning yet. And there was a big article written in the, you know, in the athletic um, you know, players basically sounding off against, you know, shocker, you know, a coach is already out the door that they're going off on and they're not speaking highly of them. You know, one player was quoted saying, I thought I was getting picked on. You know, he, he you know, he wasn't all that positive. Now look, the record speaks for itself in a sense. That's not a great record. The owner wanted to win this year. I get it. You know, the expectation was a little higher than what they did. But with the the young players, you know, Trey Young and, and Lloyd Pierce, I guess they didn't have a great relationship. Look, I've known Lloyd a long time. He's a good basketball mind. I mean, his his sort of journey to get in the NBA is a very tough one. Didn't play in the NBA, played with Steve Nash in Santa Clara. Um, was a um, over he he was a development coach in Golden State, you know, from Golden State to Cleveland, Cleveland to Memphis, and then he becomes an assistant coach um, with Philly. I actually tried to get Rick Carlisle to hire him when we were trying to look for an assistant, and you know, some negotiations were sort of you know stalemated, and I tried to have him call Philly, and we actually did call Philly and asked for permission to talk, but it was just dragging too much, and we ended up hiring another guy. I, I, you know, I think he's a good coach. The problem is when you don't have a lot of talent and your veterans that you're supposed to help you were out, it's really hard to win. And then when the young players said he was picking on me, now that's called coaching. Like Lloyd's a, you know, I spent a lot of time with Lloyd over the last 10 years or so. And, you know, the guy's dedicated to coaching. He's going to tell you the truth. He's going to try to get the best out of you. The record wasn't great. I think in a competition committee meeting, he sort of brought up the, the, the bullshit shots that Trey uh, follows that Trey Young gets, you know, and, and basically speaking in the hole as the, you know, competition committee about, hey, can we stop these calls? This is what I don't like. And he mentioned Trey Young's name, and that's probably not the best thing to do because that's going to get back to him when you, you know, when you're saying his, you know, saying something that's not sort of positive about your own player and it gets out to other people. So there were some other things, but. Yeah, but that's it's tough, man. That if, if you're in those coaches' meetings and you use your own player, then it doesn't look like – there's probably that mindset. Maybe his strategy with that was I'm not going to use another team's player because it looks like I'm bitching. Like if I use James Harden, we need to stop the yeah. sweep through. James Harden's killing the game. It, it looks like kind of you know sour milk to an extent. So maybe his mindset was I'm going to use an example of my own player. Like it wasn't maybe yeah. as personal. Like that's – you know. No. But, but I agree with you. Like it gets back to Trey Young and now, you, now you're in a – you know, a posturing yeah. type uh, type thing with your best player. Yeah, and, and look, he's a player's coach. He's he communicates. He's very well. You know, he, he's very well organized. The guy's dedicated. He's gonna. He's not gonna bullshit you. He, he's not in a tomfoolery with like me. You know, a lot of times I'll I'll, I'll tr we went to China a bunch with Nike and I crack jokes and stuff. He just sort of chuckle, but he's a serious guy. He takes himself serious. He takes his job serious. But again with mediocre talent and that's what they have right now like they don't have like 
you know, it's hard to influence winning when you're a young player. Larry Bird did it. LeBron James did it. To, uh, you know, uh, Steve Nash did it. Jason Kidd did it. Where basically they were a single, that one defining factor of why their team sort of got a turnaround. And Trey Young and Hunter and, you know, you talk to all the scouts that watch their games and they say, they say the same thing. Look, they put up points. They don't know how to win yet. And, but the ownership probably was saying, look, I'm getting my brains beat in financially anyway. This is, we spent all this money in free agency. I get sort of what they're trying to do. What I would have done is I would have probably given them to the end of the year. Those guys are getting healthy. Let them play together and, and figure out. But they, they probably figured they got Nate McMillan right there. They, they got to right the ship. They got to try to get in the playoffs. But they're pretty close to still being in the playoffs. I think they're only a game out of 10th, which isn't great. But I don't know. It's tough, man. I mean, if you're going to make the call to fire the guy, you got the record, you get your pl- the players quitting on him, you know. But as young players, at some point, you got to look in the mirror and say, look, it's, you know, when the coach is poking, you know, it's, like bringing my name up in film sessions, he's trying to he's trying to fix what I'm doing wrong, and he's trying to like correct me so I can get better. But young players, man, that's why like in the high school level, AAU level, a lot of college, nobody wants to correct them because they they don't want them to transfer or quit on them. And that's why young players, when they get into the NBA, for the most part, when they when p- people start trying to coach them and, and point out things that they do wrong, they don't take it well. Not everybody, but a lot, a, a big percentage. And I, I've, it is what it is, though. It's a tough job. We'll get into it later in the podcast when we talk about you know young coaches and you know people who walk into jobs that are winning teams versus assistants with no coaching experience that walk into rebuild jobs and how hard it is to get to that you know to sort of turn the corner with your job. But it's yeah. a tough decision, Ben. I mean, I, I agree somewhat. I think um, the East is just so, I wouldn't say it's bad. It's just so, it's so, you know, I think fourth or fifth, which we'll talk about a bit later, is, is just, just on 500. So, you're right. I think Atlanta's, you know, if you're 10 games behind 500, you're, you're still in the mix in the East. So, my opinion is it must have been really toxic and bad where, you know, let's be honest, it comes down to Trey Young's the number one opinion you'd ask about keeping your coach on that the GM will go to. Yeah, and he's obviously said, right. he's obviously clearly said I want him out of here. He's gone, but yeah, they they are you know they're close to the playoffs. Gallo, Gallinari, Rondo, they've had injuries, they've had different lineups and whatnot. So the argument can be made to let him finish the year and then we move on. But I think it's probably got to a point where, like you said, I think guys have tuned him out. It's a bit toxic in that locker room, and I think the the ownership and the GM, who I know, I know the GM very well. I was in Golden State when I was there. I probably just said, "Hey, we need to push the reset button, and playoffs aren't important this season. Let's let's rebuild, get to a good off season." And look, Nate Nate McMillan's. This is what I don't understand. Like, if you're if you're Trey Young and that Nate McMillan's probably even more of a disciplinarian than, <laughs> than Lloyd Pierce. Like, he is. He's tough. Nate doesn't fuck around. No. I had, I believe Nate was in Portland a number of years ago, right? Um, and yeah, he was in Port- he was in Seattle first, then Portland. Than Indiana. I yeah. mean, he's well traveled. So Jamal McGlaw got traded. My rookie year, we moved Jamal McGlaw in the off season, and he went to Portland. And mm-hmm. I was really close. He was my veteran. Jamal really looked after me. Um, you know, he was a really, really, really good to me, being an international guy, and looked after me, especially away from the floor. And um, I caught up with him. I remember we were coming to shoot around one morning, about to play him. And you know how the teams cross paths. They worked out before us or after us or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, and we walked off the court. They walked on. And um, I remember talking to Jamal, and, and he was like, he hated it there because Nate, Nate had a rule where there was no phones on the buses. 
Um, so you, you couldn't, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to be on your phone on the bus. So you try to influence guys mm-hmm. talking to each other and whatnot. And that's just not, that couldn't be done today. This was in 2006, seven, but he was, he was strict and he had his rules and there was no messing around. I remember Jamal, you know, within earshot of Nate, it was like, man, I just, I'm in jail right now. I need to get out of jail. <laughs> it's just, yeah. He, he, so, you know, these young kids are going to be in for a big surprise once, once good old, you know how it is when you're an assistant coach and you, you got to kind of be good cop to when the coach is bad cop and you keep your head up, you know, he's being a bit hard on you, mm-hmm. but don't worry about it. You'll get your chance, blah, blah, blah. Now that relationship changes with a Trey Young and Nate. Now Nate's going to be, he's going to be putting out those film sessions even more, I think. Bogues, were you ever around a team that, sort of gave up on their coach and just sort of started tuning the coach out. I mean, you've been, you've been in a bunch of teams on different levels. Like, have you ever been around that to, to oh, a yeah. higher, higher extent? Yep. No doubt. I think my, my second year in the league, we fired uh, Terry Stotts and Larry Kroskovia got promoted, which seemed like a good thing at the time. And he took over and did a decent job for the rest of that season, similar to the position Nate's in. And then within, like, he tried to put the triangle in and guys weren't really buying oh. into that uh, back then. Mm-hmm. And yeah, by like the first, basically, it felt like training camp preseason back then was a month. It felt like after that, guys had already been like, yeah, lame duck coach. He's on a, a minimum coach's salary. Yeah, I'm not, not going to listen to him. And, and he was he was gone within the year. He, you know, we spoke about that last year about a coach that takes over midseason, not surviving when we're discussing Minnesota. And that was Larry Kosorovic ended up going back to the University of Utah. But yeah, it's it sucks. And it's, it seems to always kind of be the small markets. I'm not sure why. I mean, because they, they, you know, they kind of have to take risks at times that big markets don't. And yeah, it can screw you up for two or three years. Yeah, it's hard. And Lloyd's going to get another job. I did a, a coaching study uh, for the last 10, 15 years on on head coaches being hired. And it's very low percentage of coaches only get one chance of coaching in the NBA, as long as you're not around a scandal or just had a totally destructive one season, which he didn't have. I mean, he had, you know, he had two and a half years you know, I think he did an, uh, the best job that, well, John fucking Wooden wouldn't win there. You know, you could have John Wooden, <laughs> Phil Jackson, any coach. You could put fucking coach after coach, you know, after coach, a, a, the top 20 coaches of all time. I've seen coaches a year that were great coaches that like have great records because they have great players and they're good coaches. Don't get me wrong. When they don't have talent, they get their teeth kicked in just like anybody else. I don't care how many fucking tricky plays you got. I don't care how many coach of the year awards you got. If you don't have talent, you're not going to win. And they, look, they had okay talent. I'm not saying they had terrible talent, but they don't, they don't have the young players to influence winning. And then the players that's supposed to influence winning that they sign in the offseason were hurt for a lot of the time that they had. So it's really tough. I think. When one thing that he could probably take from this is the mistakes he's made because with young assistants with no head coaching experience in the NBA, you don't get any experience. I don't care a fuck how many summer leagues you coach. I don't care about how many like plays you put in in practice. You don't, I mean, until you're the actual head coach running this shit with NBA fucking egos and NBA players, it's hard, man. And, and usually it's the first job that sort of gets you through that learning curve. You know, and he'll 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 probably have to be an assistant somewhere and then he'll come back. You know, he'll he'll definitely be a head coach again, in my opinion. It's just gonna take some time. It's a matter of time, yeah. We're interested to see how that goes. I guess the other reason why we brought this up is um our old boss and and you know, coach of the Dallas Mavericks, who is the head of the coaches association. His comments to me were 
absolutely unbelievable in regards to Lloyd Pierce's firing. So for those that don't know, Lloyd Pierce was very, he's very, very, very active in, in the Atlanta community in Georgia and does a lot of things with poorer communities there and social justice. And, you know, he's a, he's a big proponent of, of helping his community. And he was really um, heralded for, for doing that the last couple of years. It's been well noted in the media and did a fantastic job of, of different things in helping his community. You know, some coaches that get involved, there's some that don't. He was, he probably did more than, way more than he, than he, was required to, and the, the the comment from Rick Carlisle reads like this: "It's you know the NBCA president Rick Carlisle and Lord Pierce's insane firing in Atlanta, Georgia, in a very large part because of Lloyd's work and commitment, went from being a traditional Republican state to a Democratic state, which has massively changed the landscape of our country." And I read that man, and I almost threw up on my breakfast when I was reading it on Hoops Height. What the hell does that have to do with coaching? Like, um, you know, we spoke about this last week to an extent with the Minnesota um, hiring and firing and debacle, debacle there in the media and, you know, a bit of racial tension there and whatnot. And now, now you're saying that a coach can't get fired based on his coaching performance if he does all the right things off the floor. That's not how that's not how things work. It'd be the equivalent of hiring someone to do the, that community work and their coaching record is... 90%, but they're not doing the community work, you're going to fire them for the community work. Like, I, I can't get my head around how someone, one, I don't think Rick made that quote. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'd bet my house that it wasn't him. It, it's someone that I'd probably know who it is. I'd, I'd probably feel pretty comfortable knowing who wrote that, that it wasn't him that said it. He got that that written for him and, and, and said it. But just, the I don't know, the goal to come out with, with a political take about a coach's firing to me, bro, I, I just... That's sickening to me. And if that's where we're going, whether it's Democrat or Republican or left, right, middle, I don't give a shit. I don't want to hear that someone was fired but did all this great political work, whatever spectrum they're on. It it should have no bearing on on your performance. I mean, what, what do you think about all that? Well, I, I think a couple of things. The first thing is we I talked about last week about intent versus perception. I think the intent because anytime a coach gets fired, you hear from two people. You hear from the coaches association and you hear from Jeff Van Gundy for about six weeks on any telecast that he's on, <laughs> on any TV fucking cast that he's on. He's like a coach could be like, like he could be ripping the heads off of puppies and Jeff Van Gundy's going to be standing up and saying, wait a minute. He, he was two and 12,000. He was caught, you know, he's caught murdering puppies, but he should never have gotten fired. But no, seriously, like, so you, you definitely going to hear something. And I think the intent was to back up Lloyd Pearson, like, you know, wrong firing, shouldn't have got fired. But like I was waiting for like a basketball reason why he shouldn't have got fired because, you know, that's the first thing. Like I thought, you know, I think he was trying to back him up or the association's trying to back him up. But like I was expecting something basketball, his development, not enough time, injuries, you know, he's a great coach, good, like high character, what have you. Now, the second thing is, and if I'm in the coaches association and the coaches association is saying this and I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big timer say, say I'm like, you know, say I'm a third assistant on some small market team that I have zero chance of being a head coach, but what I'm, and I'm not political, just say I'm, I'm not political at all. And now I'm hearing the head of the coaches association say that. And I'm saying, wait a minute. Now I'm, I need everything to go right for me to have any chance to be a head coach. Do I try to impress and get people to back me up if I start, you know, being an advocate towards, you know, being, you know, being political, being political on, you know, on the Democratic side, because that's the side that they're obviously coveting. And then also, if I'm a, you know, no one will ever admit this, but if I'm a, if I'm a Republican, do I have to change the way I think because of the fact, like, if it ever gets out that they're not going to support me? 
you know, and I'm sure that's not the case, but that's the perception I would have. Like if I was a big timer, it didn't matter. Like if I'm a big time assistant or another head coach that I know I'm going to be employed for 30 years, it doesn't matter. That's one thing. But if you're saying that, and it's obvious that, 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 that they're supporting, you know, they're supporting the left side, you know, by, by saying those comments, I'll be saying if I'm a small time guy try, or, or, or a lady that's on a staff, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Now, how am I going to react to this if I'm not, a not political, and I, I don't really, I'm sort of in the middle, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a really big political person. Or do I have to go against my beliefs? Or if I am um, political and I'm on the right, I'm on the right. Or is that the right side? I'm not all that political. If I'm a, a Republican, do I have to change the way that I think just to get support? You know, to basically because these guys are the ones who are talking to GMs a lot. Besides my agent. Am, you know, am I supposed to change the way I think to get sort of in good favor with the people that are going to help me get a job? So it'd be a little bit confusing for sure if I was in that association. Oh, man, I'm asking for a refund if I'm in that association. I'm paying my, my, my union fees to recarlize as my president. I'm, I'm not paying one more due till he's gone. That is bullshit. Plain and utter bullshit. You, you can't, like you said, you know, this isn't a political conversation, but I can, I'll bet my house there's, there's, there's some Republican coaches. That, it, you just go by the numbers. You, if you think the whole NBA leans one way or leans the other way, you're an idiot. Now, there, there's an argument to be made that there's some that are probably closeted because they're not allowed to come out and say they're Republican. That's an issue in itself, in my opinion. You should be free to say you're for whatever political party you want in a free country, in a free world, right? But to have the president of your coaches association, that's an alarming statement and that's a divisive statement that, you know, people always talk about equality and everyone should have equal opportunity well you you've basically just said if, if you know you're a republican you know so if, okay if lloyd pierce is a republican what's the comment then you know what's 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 the comment oh yep we don't like it when coaches get fired but his record was bad let's get on with things you know and that's why it's you know there's an argument for that whole politics and sports gets gets muddy this is a prime example of it and, and for me you know i don't want to throw stones at rick carlisle but for him to be this now face of the progressive movement is is interesting because i spent time with him and I had a different kind of feel for him when I was around that environment. Uh, I'm not saying anything crazy, but the extremes that he's going to with these comments, I didn't see that when I was around him on a daily basis. That's just me. That's my opinion. And that's kind of the, the dealings that I had. But I just think this is, is a very slippery slope. I, I don't like it. Um, I hope either someone has a conversation with Rick Carlisle from, from the coaches union, whoever's on that board, or some coaches get together because – you know that that's that's eventually going to end ugly for somebody, um, and it's, it could end, it could potentially end in a lawsuit, could end in wrongful dismissal, could end in a bunch of different things. You know, and you just don't want to. I just I just think that's the line you just you shouldn't cross. Yeah, I just don't. I don't really mix sports, and I don't, I don't mix mix any business with politics. It just I, I think it's 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 a, like you said, a slippery slope as far as a you know. A philosophy. I just sort of keep out of it and, you know, try to keep it separated and just because it's such a powder keg subject on any front, you know, to sort of mention any, any indications of that. So. And then, you, and then you got, like you said, you mentioned the, the exact same thing I think at times. You've got people that are, okay, I'm a head coach. I'm, I'm the third assistant. I want to be a, I want to be a head coach one day. Like I, I need to toe the line. So if I don't really believe in you know, let's say the Democratic Party and and ha what that means to to the NBA and NBA players. I need to toe the line that I do to get a job. That's wrong. That is plain 
plain and simply wrong. And now you're encouraging people to to be fake and to be, you know, you don't believe in it, but publicly say you believe in it. So you can be part of the boys club. Like, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not rolling with that. And that's why, you know, to an extent, I, I, I've copped some flack over there because everyone thinks I'm this right wing nut job, which I'm, I don't think I am. People label me that all the time, but I'm also the, the anti-left progressive. I'm a great guy, but I know what you like behind closed doors. Like a lot of these people that make these public comments that I read, whether it's the NBA or celebrities, I've spent time with some of those people behind closed doors. I know what you're really like when the cameras are off. So don't give me that bullshit about that you're full of cause and you're progressive and all that when when behind closed doors you treat people like absolute shit so that's where i have an issue with this but like you said i, I just don't think it's i don't think it's good um if i'm on the coaches association I'm, I'm paying my dues i'm 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 asking for a refund and i'm not paying that next bill until something <laughs> something happens but that's just me but that leads us into um talking about coaches that walked into really good teams and, and obviously we know there's a, a bunch of coaches that walked into shit shows and that hasn't fared well but we did you know you did a little bit of research and we're going to talk about a few coaches that basically walked into good situations yeah i mean obviously like if you go down that we'll just go we'll start with the east like most coaches that take over jobs are going to take over losing situations. And the best jobs that are open in the offseason are usually taken by ex-head coaches. They're, you know, they, they're not going to entrust, not many organizations are going to entrust an assistant coach to take over a big-time situation unless, for the most part, you were an assistant under that head coach that got fired and they moved you on. So like Doc Rivers from Clippers to Philly, you know, uh, Steve Nash, Brooklyn, especially after, you know, they had those two guys, they added a third with Harden. Um, you know, you go to Nick Nurse in Toronto, who was, you know, who, who was an assistant coach, took over the reins, and now is in a, in a good situation. Even Nate Bjorken, that was an assistant in Toronto, uh, took over in Indiana, winning situation. You had Frank Vogel, who was out of coaching, got um, got let go last in Orlando, you know, going to the Los Angeles Lakers, and they were in a winning situation. You had Ty Lue, you know, get into the Clippers situation, you know, automatic championship um, conversation. You've got uh, Steve Kerr, walked into a, a, a situation, you know, Mark Jackson got let go. He takes over, no coaching experience. Ding, ding, Rick ding. Carlisle. Give him the award for the all-time best opportunity walked into, man. Like, he, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that because I was Without just question. on that team. But if you could walk into any Without team, question. you know, especially yeah. coming from a commentary booth, Steve Kerr yeah. struck gold. So, yeah, go on. And Rick Carlisle, um, when he took over in, in Dallas, they had most of the pieces in place and you know to get to the championship. And, and it was a very good situation. But most of these situations, Bogues, like there was nine openings last year. You know, five were taken by... Um, veteran coaches. And then you had Steve Nash take over in Brooklyn, no coaching experience. And then the three coaches that didn't have coaching experience took over. You know, I think there was like five openings the year before that or six openings. And, you know, half the, half the team, the most likely half the jobs are going to be filled by either head coaches that were fired or, you know, or retreads or, or somebody's going to come out of the booth that was coaching that, that coach four or five years ago and then gets a job. You know, most of these assistants that haven't coached, uh, hasn't been a head coach previously are going to have to take those jobs that you're going to have to rebuild. You know, the Minnesotas, the Atlantas, 
you know, the Charlottes, like, and for the most part, you have to be, you know, most of these jobs, no one's hiring an assistant coach from a losing program. I had a head coach have a heart to heart with me about, you know, a couple years ago about Mike. He goes, Hey, how do I help my top assistant or second assistant get more, you know, more love by trying to get to these head jobs. I said, you got to win more fucking games. No offense. He wanted to knock me the fuck out. And I was, for the first time <laughs> in my life, I wasn't being an asshole. And I said, look, just do the research. All these guys that get jobs that are assistant coaches, Lloyd Pierce, second round, you know, Philly, and they were, they were starting to become a really good, you know, a really good team. You know, Quinn Snyder was an assistant for Atlanta when they were rolling. Budenhauser was an assistant for, you know, for San Antonio for years. Brett Brown, assistant coach for San Antonio for years. Luke Walton. You know, like yeah. if, yeah, yeah, all these guys. Steven Silas is probably the only guy that got hired from a situation that didn't win a playoff series into an, an NBA organization that w- didn't come from like an automatic winner. Now, he ought, he was a finalist the last time Houston opened up and he lost out and he's a very well-respected assistant coach. And they wanted a, they wanted him when the next time, you know, that that the that the job got open. But like it's it's hard, man. And most of these assistant coaches, like if you're an assistant coach and you're trying to get like look at Mike Brown, like Mike Brown goes to Golden State because they're going to win championships and it's a better chance for him to get a a fourth chance at becoming a head coach. Like that's what they want. You know, Tom Thibodeau you know, was an assistant for Houston for years, goes to Boston, they win a championship. Then he starts his journey as a coach. You know, Mike Malone came from a winner. You know, all these guys that get head coaches, get coaching jobs come from winners. And then, you know, sometimes it's like a lot of times you hear slack, you know, flack from the media, certain coaches are set up to fail. No, it's not like that. But if you're a big market team, you're going to hire, for the most part, an established coach that coached before, especially if you have a winning team and you're ready to go to a championship level. Like Spolstra, you know, Spolstra walked into it a little bit, but he was an assistant for Miami for years yeah, and, and, and yeah. learned under Pat Riley. Like, and he's a, he, in my opinion, he's the best coach in the league, yep. you know, uh, and, and it's interesting. Pop, they weren't a winner, but they got Duncan his first year and they already had David Robinson and the rest of the guys and, and they built a winner. Like, most of the time, if you're an assistant coach and you're going to take a job, it's going to be a losing situation. It's, and it's going to be, it's going to be a, a you know, a, you got to have to rebuild a thing. And you need an owner and a general manager that's behind you. You need a lot of luck. You need an owner that's going to spend. You need a general manager that knows how to bring in talent. You got to have to bring in the right guys. They're going to have to have talent. They're going to have to build. You're going to have to sign veterans at some point and try to turn the corner. There's a lot of things. And, and if you look at these t- coaching jobs, you know, I looked in, I looked into the, not anyone who's coaching teams right now, but the three coaches that coached before them. So I studied 90 coaches. The tenure of an NBA head coach is three and a half years. And Bogues, I, I'm going to ask you a question. Out of 90 coaches, how many coaches do you think uh, past coaches? How many coaches do you think coach past ten years, ten years or more? Oh wow! Out of ninety, out of ninety on the same team or just in general as a head coach? No, from that team had a from ten year in one before they got fired or went to another job. Oh shit! It'd be less than ten. One Jerry Sloan, twenty two, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe twenty three. Yeah, and then there was like there was like Doc Rivers was close. You know, in Boston, I think he had nine. Uh, George Carl had eight in, in Denver. 
But most of these jobs, it's not going to end well. And that's why you got to build for the second. Sometimes you got to build for that second job. It's not like college where like you're in mid-major school, you win, and then you go to a bigger school. If you turn the corner in the NBA with your team, for the most part, A, the, the team's not letting you out. And you're not going to go anywhere, anywhere. And but then you get that team going, so you're gonna you're gonna stick on with that team, and you're gonna go through with it. So you know these openings, most of the openings, there's a reason why the fucking job was open. They got fired, or you know, not many teams like the you leave a head coaching job for a bigger head coaching job. It it very rarely happens unless you get fired. You know, yeah. it, it, it's a tough it's a tough slope. Yeah, and like you said, the the, the coaches are somewhat set up. Walking into a, a job that is, you know, it's a bad situation because it's a bad job. <laughs> like, you know, it's not, yeah. there's no rocket science behind it. You're going into a bad situation. You better have your shit organized. You better be running good set, you know, a good, good, good training sessions, good training camp, a good developmental program with your assistants. You better have everything, every box ticked because that's a shitty situation for a reason. But one bit that you said, you know, luck plays a, a part in it. it. It does. I'll give you an example. People probably wouldn't know this story, but Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr told this story, I believe. And in that year where they, was it the 99, 2000 year, they had, um, I think that was the year. Um, they they basically had a shitty start to the season, first thirty or forty games, and they were I think they were five hundred or below five hundred. And word got to Steve and the players through their agent that hey, you guys have a game. I think it was Friday Sunday. You know you're going to lose Friday, lose Sunday. If you lose Sunday, they're firing Greg on Monday. And then uh, I guess they won Sunday. So the teams like you know some of these teams for people out there listening, they don't like firing a head coach after a win. I don't know what it just is what it is. They'll wait for a blowout. Just so it coincides with their, see, we fired him because he sucks, kind of thing, right? So anyway, they they go to they go to um, this is the lockout year, I believe. They they go to the Monday game. They win the Monday game. They fucking go on to win like they go on a double digit win streak. They win like the next fifteen of twenty or whatever it was. They win the championship. So it just goes to show you that 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 margin for error. How now that you know the Spurs are geniuses, the front office is you know they're geniuses, and Buford's done you know everyone's done a great job. It was that close. You know, it was that close to him being gone, and they they end up winning a game, find their rhythm, and come back and, and win a championship. And and now he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. But that's what pros talking about. Like, you need that stroke of luck every now and then, that bounce of the ball or something to happen. And you know, that's just a story that I don't think many people would know. Yeah, I hate that shit too. Like when I talk to scouts and stuff. Oh, word on the street: if he loses like the next two in a row, he's fired. Like, first of all. Okay, so if he doesn't, you're gonna fire him in the next game. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, if you're gonna <laughs> yeah, fire, so yeah, if you're gonna fire a guy, fucking fire a guy. And then one more thing, like, and here's a big debate, folks. And I, there's no way it's like finding out who what came first, the chicken or the egg. Like, all right, who's to blame for a team? The coach or the general manager? And who takes credit? The general manager the, or the coach on how a team does? And it's a like, first of all, I hate that credit blame shit you're all in this together but like it is true that like it's a it's sort of a nuclear arms race to see who has the owner's ear like first yeah. the coach or the general manager and then i haven't seen many situations where it's like 50 50 and like somebody's got to like stand up for the other guy and they don't and they just push the other guy off the ledge to keep their own job like that's part that's the reality of the league 
you know, yeah, I, I most worked times, for, most times it's the GM that wins that battle because the GMs. Yeah, because you're next to the you're next to the owner for all sure. Game, but all game, you're next to the owner. Yeah. You're sitting there saying, "Why did he make that sub? Why hasn't he played this guy? Why are we having that coverage?" And you're in the owner's ear, and the owner's like, "Oh, this guy knows what he's talking about." Yep, the game is shit. My team sucks. I'm pissed off. He's telling me what I want to hear. And like you said, it's an arms race, and I've seen that so many times. It's an arms race, and that the GM nine times out of ten is going to win that race. The coach is going to get fired. They're going to bring in their own guy, and then most smart owners don't give the GM another chance. I've seen GMs get a third chance to hire a coach, second, third chance. Most most owners will then realize, hang on a second, like. This is our second going on third coach. Maybe you're the problem, and, and then they end up getting fired. But it usually takes a coach or two to fall before a GM does. Yeah, like you know, I worked for Chris Wallace before, who was a GM of Boston and GM of Memphis um, when they had that run in the Western Conference Finals and things. And I loved him because he always you know, like he wasn't one of those GMs that gotten you know he got in the coach's ear about you had to run this set, you have to do this, you have to do that. He left the coach alone. He said, "Look, your coaching is yours." Development, all that stuff is yours. The draft, free agency is mine. I'm not going to fuck with you. Don't fuck with me on my stuff. I'll keep you in the loop on, on the on the front office things. And that's what I think it should be. It should be sort of a separate thing. And but you guys are working together. Like I, yeah, you know, I, I countless times when I was with Danny Ainge, he'd always back up his coaches. You know, when when, when there was a bad streak, I, I saw him listen to him talk to owners. And he backed things up, backed Doc up, like you know when we when Boston was wasn't a very good team, and saying that look we haven't given him the team yet that he needs. He's a championship level coach, you know. We just need to give him, you know, we're just going to give him more time, and, and something's going to happen. Now I don't think he knew what was going to happen with the championship that they won in 08. but like that to me is that's integrity because a lot of times you can just throw anyone under the bus when no one's around. And we talk about what people are when the cameras are on versus off. But like, you know, that's the tough thing. Like everybody wants to, especially it's a big, it's a big thing in media. Like, you know, who takes credit? Well, fuck that credit shit. Who cares? You're winning, you're making money, you're, you're, you know, and you're, and you're, you know, you're sort of settled. But like, and then when things go bad, everybody's trying to throw everybody under the bus and it's their fault. It's their fault. It's hard to say who's, who it is because the GM's got to make the trades. He's got to draft the players. He's got to hire, you know, in the front office. And then the coach has to coach those egos every day. The GM doesn't do that. He's got to work with the development of the players. The GM doesn't do that. And he's got to deal with the shit every day. So, you know, those two have a lot in common. It's not like football where the, the head coach – or American football where the head coach is usually the general manager too and, and he makes all the decisions. And the NBA would never have the head coach be the GM because – you know, they're very much like today. They want to win games today for good reason. They want to keep their job. But they don't, a lot of times as a GM, you got to make some short-term bad decisions that's going to be great in the long term. And I don't think a lot of head coaches would think like that. I think they would think today. They wouldn't think about minutes with young guys. They wouldn't think about any of that. They're, they're just trying to win games today. Understandably so. But like that's why I think it should be separation a little bit. They got to be together, 
but they got to be separate. And I don't think you can really track why a team's good, either the general manager or the head coach, you know, because they're both very, very important. And so is the owner, obviously, cutting all the checks with what's going on as well. Yeah, I wonder that, that brings up an interesting point that I wonder if teams would look towards giving GMs longer contracts. Like, let's say instead of five years, you know, 15 million, you give them 10 years at 20 million or something like that. Just, I wonder if there'll be a mindset around, like, hey, this guy's our guy. We know he's fantastic, but we need to, we want him to have an incentive to make sure we're good in five, six years rather than just the next year or two. And there's an argument to be made, but there's pros and cons, obviously. It's harder, harder to fire a guy like that because he's got a longer deal. But maybe we see a shift down the track because I think the development is something that, like you said, it just gets lost. It's a win-now league. But if you've got a roster that isn't win-now and then you're, you're judging your coach and your GM upon wins, it's like you're kind of like setting them up to fail to an extent because you're just going to be in that constant cycle of even if you do win, you're going to be a 7, 8, 9, 10 seed. And then, you know, it's just going to end poorly for everyone. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens down that line if, if there are some teams that give GMs long. What's the longest you've heard? Five years for a GM these days? Yeah, like five or six. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, and I know the head coach is three and a half years basically for the um, for the tenure with a team. But like GMs, I haven't studied that, so I don't know. But I know a lot of GMs keep their jobs for a long time. Much longer, yeah. You know, a long time. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, it's interesting. But I never really think about who's – like I, I hate when players – like they talk about whose team it is. And I yeah. hate when they say like who's to – who's – you know, who's the number one factor, the GM or the coach? I, I just think everybody's together, you know, and once you start thinking like that and chasing credit, because there are a lot of people in this business who love to chase credit and love to pat themselves on the back. It's a, it's a, that's a slippery slope. I don't, I don't even like to think about that shit. And then it's on, on top of that, you've got the GMs that form like a big three or get three of the best players in the league, like... I mean, to me, yeah, you need to get the pieces around them to be successful. But <laughs> if you're Brooklyn and you're that GM, I, I doubt the job was too hard. They all wanted to come together and play. You know what I mean? So you do need, and that's luck. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And and like, okay, there's an argument that you got to move cap space and you got to make you know make the money available. You might need to go to your owner and and. and you know, ask him, beg him to go over the cap. But, you know, sometimes GMs get credit. It's like, shit, like you get three of the best players in the league. You should be first, if not second, every season. Like, that's not a GM move. You just you just got lucky that three players wanted to come together in Brooklyn or Miami or whoever it was, and you put it together. But um, that can be a long conversation. The East will move on to the, the East Eastern Conference. Fifth seed is one game over 500. Um, it's the closest it's been for a long time. I mean, from from basically, like we said, Atlanta's still theoretically in the mix, but it's been interesting to watch. Like it's the, 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 we potted uh, the Celtics last week, and you know they've won three or four in a row, and <laughs> now they're in fourth. You know, and they were they were ninth when we spoke about this four you know four or five days ago. So it's been um, it's been interesting watching the East. Yeah, it is in Boston. Like I said last last week, like and people who rush the judgment because a lot of people in Boston that want to make changes and with Danny Ainge and, and and with Brad Stevens and that's just like you can't react like that look they've they've got two of the best young players like those two guys are very good they got them signed for a long time they got a coach who's solid and they've got you know they've got good pieces around them with Marcus Smart being out and he's their best defender by far 
And then Kemba Walker coming back late with a knee. You just got to give the team time. Look, are they the, you know, are they the 86 Celtics and their automatic championship? Hell no. But what they are is a solid team that could probably get into the top three, you know, in the East. And then who knows what happens in the playoffs. But like by this herky jerky, like they, they're struggling a little bit and want to throw everybody, you know, off the side and say, yeah, we got to blow this thing up. This guy's got to get fired. We got to trade this guy. Like, that's not, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to trade Jalen Brown. You're going to trade Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum's a top 15 player. You know, Jalen Brown's an, an all-star, top 30 player. Like, and then you got some good pieces around. Like, just, like, relax. It's just, a, it's a long season. It's a long season. It's like yeah, we talked they'll about. Be fine. Until, they'll, they'll be fine in the long yeah. run. It was just that they definitely did slump for a good, you know, three to four weeks. For sure. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't think it was the end of the world for him to the point where you need to make a trade or fire a coach. It was just a matter of what the hell's going on down there. But you look at the East right now, I'm looking at the standings in Detroit who are in dead last, are seven games away, sorry, six and a half games away from 10th. And they could essentially, you know, go on a streak and you know, I doubt they will, but I'm just talking about it, man. Like Washington and Cleveland are both three games out of the 10, um, two and a half games out of the t- It's just a crazy, basically from, you know, what would you say from fourth to 14th is still kind of wide open. Um, I mean, yeah, the Celtics it is. And Orlando's so solid. Yeah. Yeah. Like Orlando's not bad. They're, they're solid. You know, I don't think Cleveland's going to sort of, you know, because they're probably going to dump Drummond at some point. And you saw uh, that, you know, Griffin went to, you know, uh, Brooklyn. Uh, but they're going to probably j- dump Drummond at some point. It's probably not going to be for an equal player. It's probably going to be, you know, a salary dump or some picks. So they'll probably drop out of it. I think Washington's very much alive. Atlanta's much alive. You know, I don't know what's going to go on in Chicago, but they've been battling pretty hard. You know, Toronto's um, had a couple of people infected and staff infected with Corona. So, you know, they, they took a, a little bit of a hit, but they're okay. Miami, after taking a, you know, a, a, a nosedive early in the year, has done, you know, now they're back to 500. Um, it's pretty interesting. And Brooklyn is absolutely rolling, you know, especially when those guys are healthy. You know, even with like, they played Dallas and, would they have just James Harden and they stayed in it like for a, for a long time, they stayed in it until the end. But like those three guys are, I mean, they're together. They're tough to stop. And then you add Griffin in the mix, you know, we'll talk about that later, but you know, they're, they're, they're going to be a tough one to Philly because that, that'll be a tough matchup for Philly because they could go small and stretch, you know, stretch the floor, make shots pass, you know, and they're, they're so, they're so tough to on offense. It's a, it's a tough deal. Yeah, it is. It's going to be fun to watch. I mean, the one one team I've enjoyed watching is the Charlotte Hornets. I think they've overachieved already, in my opinion. You know, I know we're halfway through the year and just before All-Star, but I think they've, they're starting to look solid. They're starting to, they've got some good pieces. They're currently sitting in seventh, but as we said, they could lose three in a row and end up down near 11th or 12th. But um, yeah, I like the way they play. They move the ball well. I think um, Lamelo's having a fantastic year for a rookie. He is the rookie of the year. There's no doubt about that. Moving the ball well. They've got great shooters spaced around him. You know, Bionbo's doing a good job playing with with ball out of those pick and rolls and get some easy dunks and, and being a defensive force to the other end. So, I mean, that was a roster I thought would be down down towards the bottom. I mean, Haywood's had a good year. Just just can't stay healthy, but has had a good year so far. So, I've um, I've enjoyed watching them. What about yourself? I I do as well. Like, look, they you know it was a head scratcher at first with you know ball not starting, you know, but they were bringing him off the bench and he was playing plenty of minutes. But um, 
you know, they've got good pieces. Michael doesn't really overspend on the team, and w- which puts them in pretty good positions to to sort of make some moves and things. But um, they got solid players. They're getting good play from Haywood. You know, Rogier's been you know been solid for them. You know, Devontae Graham's been good. Ball's been excellent. Now, now he's stepping in, starting more games. Bridges plays hard, and they've got good role players. And like they don't have any great players on it. But I think in today's game, you can go far, you know, in the regular season and make a little bit of a push in the first round by having players spread out eight or nine solid rotation, have a really good player in Haywood. And then you get these young guys that are good and they're running around the space on the floor. They're driving it and they're playing good basketball. Yeah, they're they're a tough team and, and they're fun. to Like you said, they're fun to watch. It's hard to find NBA teams that are fun to watch regard. I mean, not counting like great players that you could watch on a team, but like collectively that it's not just jacking up shots all the time and just, you know, trying to you know, play that style. They, uh, they're, they're fun to watch because the ball moves. It's not one, watching one guy, you know, four guys doing their taxes by one guy dribbling around. It's actually like, it's fun to watch. Like you said, it's, um, they're a good team. They're solid. They did. They did a good job assembling that that squad. Yeah, fun to watch. I hope you know. I, th- I think they're one one or two pieces away from doing damage in the playoffs. Like you said, you know, MJ keeps a lot of uh, cap space, so that'll be fun. Fun to see if they can get one more piece. Uh, maybe a, maybe a big that can do a little bit more for them. They'll they'll have genuine, genuinely have a chance to do something. But um, moving back to a political slight, uh, LeBron James, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a um, little bit of a public spout there, which I thought was interesting, just based on some comments that I that I'd seen. So for those that aren't familiar, Zlatan basically just came out and, and said something along the lines of LeBron should stick to sports. I don't like I don't like don't like athletes that talk about politics. Now I disagree with Latan there. I think you you should be able to be free to talk about whatever you're passionate about, whether it be politics, your hobby, whatever it is. Um, I disagree there, but I picked up a bit of hypocrisy from LeBron. So I will uh, I'll play this clip and and then we'll discuss it a little bit at length. So here he goes that I just wanted to continue to share light on everything that may be going on not only in my community but around the uh, you know, this country and around the world. So, um, you know, if, 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 if there's no reason, uh, well, not only no reason, but there's no way uh, I will ever just stick to sports because I understand how, um, you know, how this platform and how powerful my voice is. So LeBron basically discussing that, you know, his voice is very powerful, which it is, both in, in the basketball world, you know, world of celebrity, um, social issues, political issues, the reason why I had an issue with his comments um, saying that he, he, he stands up for things and he'll speak out about injustices, the thing that he included in this quote was not only in this country, but around the world. So we remember uh, about a year or two ago, Daryl Morey made some comments about China. Well, not about China, just basically said free Hong Kong. And these were LeBron's quotes back then. I don't want to get into a verbal feud with Daryl Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand and he spoke. So many people could have been harmed, not only financially, I find it funny personally that he listed financially as the first thing there, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Just be careful what we tweet and say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have a freedom of speech, but there can be a lot of negative that comes with that. And then he further said it was just his belief about about the comments when it, when it comes to tweeting about Hong Kong and the protesters. I believe he was either misinformed or not really educated on the situation. 
And if he was, then so be it. I have no idea, but that is just my belief because when you say things or do things, if you are doing it and you know that people can be affected by it and families and individuals, you need to watch what you say. So I just see that as blatant hypocrisy in my opinion. Um, I see that as Nike, a Nike pay, pay for play advertisement. Um, if LeBron's going to... I think he does fantastic things for his community. He set up the school over there in Ohio where he's from. I'm not taking anything away from that. He's done a great job with that. But there's a bit of hypocrisy. If you're going to come out and say that you, you speak up for all injustices around the world, that there was clear and there still is clear injustices happening over in China and Hong Kong with that relationship. There's the, the, the Uyghurs um, in China that, that, that there is a few issues around. And it's a toxic environment over there at times. You know, it's a, it's a very, very uh, kind of... <laughs> It's a government that doesn't allow a lot of free speech and a lot of things to be said about the government. But yeah, I just think there was a little bit of hypocrisy there, Pro. Would you agree? Well, I always say in, in real life, forget about sports, in real life as well, more importantly, everybody's sort of self-righteous and everybody wants to follow rules until it's you know up to them to follow the rule or to live by what they say. And yeah, I mean, if you're going to say you're defending everything around the world, and then there's something that comes up in your wheelhouse. You got to speak on it. And it's going to bite you in the ass sometimes. And it's going to be, you're going to have to have, make some hard decisions. But if you really want to dedicate your life to doing that, you know, because he's got such a big voice. He's probably got one of the biggest voices in the world um, Easily. of yeah. all time in, in athletes. And if you're going to do that, then, yeah, you got you to, you know, you got to stick up for everything. You know, and then you got to say, you know what, this is going to hurt, but it's, 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 it's for the betterment of the world. It's for the betterment of the situation. And it's tough when you say that. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I read the comments back and forth with the no politics uh, with the soccer player, you know, that said, said what he said. And, you know, they'll always throw the shut up and dribble thing back at you. No, I'm not going to shut up and dribble. And, you know, so a lot of people just don't want to hear the politics versus sports. Like they just want, they think sports, there, there's, it's a divide. Like people say, well, no, sports, they should have politics, use their message and their brand or, or, to spread that. And then there's the side that says, wait a minute. No, people use sports as just sort of a, a release and to get away from all that and just to sort of root for their team or just watch the, to watch the games. And yeah, it's tough because when you say things like, I'm looking for everything in the world and then things pop up that you're supposed to speak on and then you sort of sit back. Well, Especially when it comes it, you, to- You double down to, to, yeah. to call a, a guy that I, I assume is pretty well read in Daryl Morey. I don't think he's a dumb guy by any means. You basically called him misinformed and uneducated and, and didn't read about the situation. And then the first thing you list is f it's going to cost people financially. I'm like, eh. Yeah, you've got a lot of business dealings in China. Nike's called you and said, play this down. The league said, shit, we make a lot of money. Your max contract is 30, 40% paid from China. We need to play this down. And, and that's that's hypocrisy. Like you're either standing up for human rights, not just in your own community, but around the world when it can affect your bottom pocket, or sorry, bottom line in your pocket, or you're not. Like there's no room in between. And I think you just, like you said, you got to be careful. If you're going to put yourself out there and do all that, then make sure you're doing it for, for the right reasons, not picking and choosing when it affects you. And that's what, what shits me a little bit. Um, I'm in the middle politically when it comes to uh, politics and sports, and I think we've discussed this at length. When you're in, in a game, getting an interview during a game where someone's watching football, basketball, golf, I don't really think politics should be the forefront of that interview, whether it's like, hey, how did you play today? Hey, I just want to you know discuss this. Well, I think eh, that's a bit much to me. But 
outside of that game on your pers- social media platform, even when you're doing a bit of media, I've got no issue with it. If you want to promote, you know, social causes that are close to your heart, you know, political parties, whatever you want to do, um, there's pros and cons to it. You got to be aware. You'll probably get some rhetoric because you're, you know, you're going to be dividing your fans, but I've got no issue with that in your own time and using your own brand to do it. But I think when it's that two hours of the game, um, I think, yeah, let people get lost in, in the in the emotions of, of the basketball game rather than hearing, you know, the same old story of what we hear on, on news channels and our friends and family talking about 24-7, right? Yeah, agree. Agree. Beautiful. That was easy. Um, yeah, I gave you one. <laughs> well, we're going to get to fact or fake news. So, uh, we had it first as as essentially Blake, will Blake Griffin sign with Brooklyn, but that's apparently going to happen. So, that's now going to be put into fact or fake news pro. Blake Griffin will be the last piece in the Nets winning an NBA championship this season. Oh, I think that they're going to be – I say it's fake news, but I think that – he will get them very, he'll get them a lot closer. You know, you watch that team, you know, they need players off the bench that could really help them. Now, his game sort of became a little prehistoric overnight, sort of like with Al Jefferson and some of these other guys, you know, because of the three point shots and, and the way the game's played. But he is another talented guy that you could throw out there. You could play him at center, you could play small ball. I would probably bring him off the bench. I think they're going to get closer. I still don't think they're good enough to win it, but damn, they're close. I say fake news. So who's who's beating them in the East? No, you think they come out of the East though? I think they come out of the East. I just don't think they'll be good enough to win. I don't think they'll be good enough to win uh, to beat. I, I still think the Lakers will win coming out of the West. Yeah, I'll, 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 I think. Hmm. Yeah, fake news. I've, I've got someone from the West. Either. The, I like the Lakers still um, once once Davis is healthy, but I think Blake Griffin adds a lot more than people think. I think he's he's not going to be this three point threat or anything like that. He can lock it down, feet set wide open, but I th- he's a huge lob threat for those guys. And James James they got DeAndre down there as well. DeAndre's moving a bit slow these days, but James is a great. I mean James and Kyrie, even KD to an extent, um, but James and Kyrie especially, they they're really good lob passes. So you all of a sudden start sending some pin downs with Blake and Kyrie coming off that thing, or even just pick and rolls and Blake rolling hard. I think it puts you in a bind because Blake's one of those guys that when he's rolling, you you need to be below him at all times, kind of with body contact. If he gets ahead of steam and he's kind of side by side with you, that that lob's been thrown up at the square, and you're not. You're running backwards. You're not. You're not catching that. So it'll then end up being one through five switches, where then Blake has a huge advantage to offensive rebounds. So I like the move. I think it's it was a no brainer. They're thin um, with bigs anyway. They had Jeff Green playing the five at times. So I think it's a it's a big win for him. But fake news as far as winning a championship for now. The problem is he hasn't really been that high flyer in the last year. Or so so that's the thing. Like the lobs and stuff. Like it's not people think Blake Griffin. They think the lob city with mm. with L A. He re- because of injuries and, and being banged up, he hasn't been that high flyer. You know, he's been a back you down from the three-point line type of player, you know, and, and being a post-up guy. I do agree with you with the 1-5 switches, being able to post up and offensive rebound. I think that, you know, the lob threat stuff, I think they'll help him with scoring off the bench because I think you keep Joe Harris in there to have four shooters out there on the floor with, you know, Irving, Harden, Harris, and Durant, and then just have another score, rebound, or tough guy to put to back up. But that's just me. But I think... I think he'll fit in real well there. I just don't think they have enough. 
I'll be interested to see actually with the lob. Like now that you don't have to play him on the ball, he doesn't have to, you know, be taxed to be their number one two option. I, I wonder if that magic potion in the knees comes back where he's a bit more fresh. So that'll be interesting to watch. I think we can have a have a check in on that about in about four or five weeks time and see who was right. But I, I got a feeling he might find a little bit of juice in those old legs. You think he'll go down to Miami like LeBron did and just sort of work out for four days and come back like he's 20? <laughs> it's that sunshine in South Beach, I think. Is that right? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. No yeah. doubt. I needed that. I needed that when I was about 26. I should have went down there. Christos Porzingis will be a Dallas Maverick past the trade deadline. Fact or fake news? I think fact. I think he will be. I think the one thing about Chris, you know, I think they would prob- they'll probably shop like most teams would just shopping and to see what they can get. I just don't think what they're going to get back is a lot better than what he is right now for them. And I think like he hasn't really been healthy. You got to roll with it. Although they got 10 back to backs in the second half of the season. Um, I think you roll with them because I just don't think you're going to get back a lot of things. It's either going to be, you know, like if you look at it, he's like the 24th highest paid player in the league. Is it around 29 million? And if you look at the players that are up there right around salary-wise, you know, there's not a lot of players that you would really cover that there would actually be available. You know, you could go through the NBA trade machine all you want, but you got to have trades that make sense. I don't think they're going to find a trade that they like. Like you could probably get Tobias Harris or you could probably get like, you know, someone like that or, you know, Kevin Love or, you know, Kyle Lowry, which he wouldn't take anyway because of Luca. You know, you're not going to get Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid. You're not going to get Damian Lillard. You're not going to get a great player. You might get, you know, you'll probably just get a salary dump and a couple of like good role players or like the really good players in the top 30. I just don't think you're going to get. So I think, I think, I, I think it's going to be tough for him to finish his contract there. I think they will move him at some point. I don't think they're going to move, think they're going to move him by, uh, by a trade deadline. Fact, yeah, I agree. I don't think, though, I mean, if you're moving him, what are you getting back? Like, are you really moving the needle that much unless they, you know, somehow package it up with some other, other players and, and get involved in some sort of super trade with a few other teams? But I just don't see, you know, them getting uh, back equal value or someone better. So he has been banged up injury-wise. He hasn't played the best, um, especially defensively. He's looked really out of sorts defensively, especially because they they, um, they switch one through five a lot and he just gets strung out and having, a, I think, the one game against um, Golden State, you know, they, they really punished him on those one for five switches to just, just get in the basket, like getting by him. He just wasn't moving his feet well. But hopefully this all-star break helps him and I believe he'll remain a maverick. The last one, after making the coaching change, the Atlanta Hawks will make the playoffs. Fact or fake news? Fact. They'll make the playoffs. They're real close now. I, I think their veterans are going to get better. Um, they're going to get, you know, they're going to get healthy. They're missing a lot, you know, with, with the injuries that they've had in the past, you know, this season. I think that, you know, in the, I think that they'll be fine. It's just going to take some time. I think their, their style of play is going to improve. And I think those veterans are going to really make a big difference. And, you know, DeAndre Hunter, which is probably a big surprise for them. I mean, he's played, he played really well in the 18 games that he played. He averaged 17 and five and he shot the shit out of the ball considering where he was. He shot like 36% from three, which he's never been a shooter before. I think, you know, Nate McMillan, you know, his influence there. I think though, I mean, I think regardless if they, if he made the coaching change or not, they would have made the playoffs, especially with the 10 teams that are going to make it. Uh, I think it's fact. I think they'll make the playoffs. 
fact, just based on the, the 10, the top 10 is technically making the playoffs. If it was the eight, I'd probably be fake news. But yeah, because they've got the top 10, the last two spots, I think fact. Um, so we'll see how mm-hmm. that goes. One thing I want to touch on that I didn't have the run sheet, I'm going to blindside you a little bit. You've been following this um, this NBA top shot kind of phase. We'll oh, Jesus. Through. Yeah. Yeah, what the fuck? Like, I, I, I've, I've read Ethan Strauss's thing on, on The Athletic. I, I've I've actually was conversing with some players in my own group chat that I, with my boys back at home. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Like, I, I sort of understand it. Like, you got all these video clips that you basically pay for. They, they only release a certain amount on a player, just like a, a trading card, you know, and you buy it and then people make offers to you for it. You, you know, the prices could fluctuate, but here's the thing. And I, I know it's probably old school type of thinking, but these video clips, you can get anywhere. You can get them on YouTube. You can get them on NBA.com stats. You can get them anywhere. So it's not like private stuff that you can't see. There was a Langston Galloway three point shot up top for $4,000. Yeah, someone, one of my, a mutual contact or a friend has bought mine. I think it was a behind the back pass to Steph for three. And I'm like, man, like, I don't think that was the best investment. But (laughs) it's, look, I I didn't understand the Bitcoin craze 10 years ago. And and now I do. And I'm I'm long, like, I like Bitcoin. I have some Bitcoin. I think it's, (laughs) I think it's unique in its own way because the way they've set it up is there's only a limited number of things, right? So I reached out to a a few friends of mine that that are, you know, uh, Bitcoiners and, and asked them about Top Shot because I, I saw some similarities there. It's online. It's kind of becoming a, it's online, own online form of basketball currency, essentially. And their mm-hmm. thoughts were nothing like Bitcoin. Um, one of the sticking points was it's not rare. It's just a lot of, it's been, it's flooding the market with a lot of things that you can already get. And I guess that's, you know, are we, are we those old dudes that just don't get it? Maybe. Um, but it's, there's nothing propriety about it. Like, I think it, like you said, you can log on to Instagram or YouTube and find that exact highlight. I'm a touch and feel guy in the nicest possible way when it comes to cards, nothing else, of course. Um, but I like, you know, if, if I collect something, I like having it on my shelf or being able to see it, touch and feel it, right? But there is an argument that the new age generation aren't about touch and feel. We see that with department stores, um, you know, a lot of electronic stores now closing because you can just order it on Amazon. You don't like it, you can send it back for free. So, who knows where it goes, but I can't, I just can't wrap my head around paying for something uh, that you can, like you said, you can just log on and see for free. Um, and even if you can trade it. Yeah, I mean, I can save it in my camera roll and we can trade it that way if you really want to and it'll be for free, right? I mean, we're in bizarro world anyway. Did you see where a Luka Doncic rookie card sold for three and a half million dollars? Did it really? It's yeah. just nuts. That's, that's yeah, crazy. it's nuts. Yeah. It's like like back in the day, I, I mean, I, I collected basketball cards and baseball cards throughout Same. my whole childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And like you, you heard about Ty Cobb and B- Babe Ruth baseball players, like their card was worth like 40000 or 50000 you know, and then you would think, okay, these cards might be able to, re- like the Michael Jordan rookie is worth about, you know, in, in top condition, you, you, you see it going for 100000 Then you see it going for 400000 Then you see some of it going for 20000 It is no rhyme or reason sometimes with these cards, but $3.5 million, you know, for a, a, a basketball card is ridiculous. But again, maybe it does make sense. I, I talked to an NBA player that had – that knows a couple of NBA players, uh, teammates of his that are invested in it in uh, Top Shot, and um, they said it makes sense to them. They're active on it; they love it. But like you said, it's not like something. 
like if they put out a video, like a Bitcoin version of a card, right? Like a photo, a card, you know, and they were selling them for this and it's, it's unique. Then I'll be like, okay, I might be able to roll with that. But when you're selling highlights that you can get anywhere, anywhere. And like I could see if LeBron James goes for 25,000, 50,000, 100, whatever it's going to go. I can't see it, but just say it did. But no, no offense to Langston Galloway, you know, but $4,000, that's the same equivalent for getting a $9 for a topless picture of me. <laughs> like it's what, like you, why, why the fuck would anybody pay for it? Like that's just, I just don't understand it. But like I said, I, I mean, I think the highest, and I could be wrong on this. But the highest uh, bid is like two hundred and fifty thousand for um, for one of the clips. Imagine paying two hundred and fifty thousand for something that my my six year old, seven year old could look up on her YouTube. Like I just don't understand it. But like I said, I mean it might it might be legit. I just don't under, I just don't I don't get it. Yeah, I mean unless they you know down the track they have exclusive videos that. You know, you can only see if you have the card, but then I guess how do you know what you're trading for? It's just an interesting one. I mean, it's it's blown up. It's gone crazy. It shows you how important. Yeah, it's great for the basketball related income, though. Bri for the players because <laughs> yeah. they get they get a percentage of that. They'll get you know whatever their cut is. It's fifty three percent. I remember getting the ad in my social media about Top Shot. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, there's no way. Again, me being a moron that I am. Like what? How can you make money at this? And now it's like the biggest trend. It's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, we Sorry, were, I cut you we off were, there, folks. What you're saying? If we were in the room in the in the room where we got pitched that idea, I don't I don't think we would have <laughs> invested. <laughs> like imagine, <laughs> hey, we're selling highlights. Like uh, okay, I, I, I mean, kudos to them if they if they make money, but they're making money apparently, and it's gone for gangbusters. But does it does it? ride the wave or is it just another fad that lasts for a year or two and then people forget about it but that's a pretty expensive like you said it's a pretty expensive hobby if this goes wayside no doubt all right moving on to q a first one off the bat my question for you for the next basketball pod is about sneaker contracts outside of the world publicized signature shoe deals what does the average nba player get for a shoe deal does the 12th man even get one and what are your general stipulations of the deal thanks for thanks for reading it's from joel didn't say where he was from but joel from somewhere in the world so yeah usually the top two or three players on your team will have a pretty lucrative uh, shoe contract um so it could be anywhere from five years 50 million if you're you know a big big name like kd lebron five years 100 million whatever it is and it could be if you're a second tier star it could be five years you know five million so that's generally how that goes and then the further down the totem pole you get there's some players that might get cash and product there's some players that might get product and there's some players that struggle to even get a shoe deal that might be getting shoes from a veteran player. So usually if you're, you know, a LeBron or a KD and and you can basically ask for whatever you want, those guys for the most part should and, and will look after the 11, 12, 13, 14th guys on the roster that don't have a shoe deal and be like, hey man, I'll tell the group manager, like, you know, take care of him, whatever he needs, put it on my account because they get it for free anyway. But I've been on both sides at a, at a college, I had a pretty big shoe deal, um, which was, which was pretty lucrative and Gave me access to any Nike stuff I wanted for friends and family and myself and whatnot and some cash. And then towards kind of the end, it was less money and I kept the kind of the same amount of Contra or apparel. And then, yeah, I mean, towards the end of my career, I 
you know, the way I was moving, they didn't want me in their shit anyway. So, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was interesting. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's different for everyone. It has changed a lot. I think back in the day, sneaker companies would uh, basically give everyone a contract, whereas they got smart now and realized like there's only one or two guys a team, if that, that are moving the needle for our marketing. Um, back in the day, they would also sometimes, um, I guess they'd, they'd sign guys to stop them being the face of another uh, brand, which is interesting. So there was some bidding wars where Nike might say, well, you know, let's say whoever it is, Dame Lillard right now is a free agent. We want to sign him to get him away from Adidas or Adidas and we're not going to really use him. We're just going to, we're going to sign and stash him if that makes sense, just so no one else can use him. So that shit happens as well. I've seen that firsthand where a couple of companies have, and, and players get frustrated because they're like, hey man, like I'm not on any billboards, I'm not being marketed and, and you could kind of read between the lines like, yeah, you were signed. So another brand couldn't use you and they're just going to put you behind KD and LeBron but have you in the family and, and that's where it gets interesting. I mean, have you seen any interesting takes with shoes, Pro? Yeah, I did. Uh, um, from people that I know at Nike tell me that the majority of the players in the NBA probably get 25000 or less for their shoe deal. There aren't many players that actually sell shoes. Like if I had a guess off the top of my head, like big time shoe sales players lebron kd uh luca is curry. probably getting to that point yeah, yeah. curry and um Giannis, yeah Giannis. i'm not sure Kyrie, a big one uh dame damian probably does well on, on the adidas side paul george but there, there's really not many players that sell shoes i remember the nike guy uh i talked to a nike guy about 22 24 years ago actually and i was asking him about um Tim Duncan just left Nike to go to Adidas. And I asked, and I was like, what, what's the deal? And he's like, well, you know, the average shoe probably sells about, I'm not, I think the number was about 50,000. And he goes, his shoe sold about 20 to 25,000 pairs. And it just big men don't sell. Um, so I remember when we drafted Al Jefferson in Boston, uh, you know, he's like a lottery, weight lottery pick and um, he didn't really have a shoe deal. So I, I called somebody at Nike and they actually sent me the contract and they offered him like 30 grand and they would give him 30 grand. They would give him like 10,000 in gear, 30,000 cash. And what they do is they incentive weight and they put incentives in the deal. Where if you're an all-star, it's like a $100,000 bonus. If you're, you make the rookie game, the rookie sophomore game, it's like fifty to 100000 If you're an MVP, it's like 200000 So, like, you could, like, if you play a lot of minutes, like, points, rebounds, assists, if it averages out to this, like, like if it's like 27 to 32, like, your points, assists, and rebounds added up, you can, you know, you'll get this bonus. So, most of these contracts are gear, you know, low cash gear and incentive based. And then the big time guys, LeBron, KD, you know, Kawhi probably makes a lot of new balance. Luca, you know, makes a, you know, probably makes a ton at, at Jordan. You know, um, I'm not sure if Anthony Davis makes, you know, kill him, but he probably makes a lot from Nike. But, you know, most of these deals, yeah, the top heavy guys, top 15 players, and there's only a few of those guys that sell, actually sell shoes, you know, and then the rest of the guys are getting like 25 grand. A lot of them don't even get money. They just get gear only, you know, so they're cut, like you, like you said, folks, they're cutting back, you know, extensively with what they spend on players. Like, 
you know, they'll spend a little bit if you're a high draft pick, but again, they'll incent, they'll, they'll base it based on incentives. And then your next deal is usually your big deal, unless you're a LeBron James off the bat, where you're going to, or KD off the bat, where they're going to try to woe you right away. Yeah, no doubt. And, and it's, it is very incentive based. That's how my contract was structured towards the end. So I, I got a bonus for like going into an Olympics and stuff like that, because the way they see it is, you play those big events and you're wearing their stuff, even though you're not a, not a big-time star, you're still wearing their stuff, so it gets seen. But yeah, the big dogs, the big superstars have eaten up all the money, and it's similar in the NBA with player contracts, like the Max guys are eating up most of the money and everyone else is left fighting for the scraps. So that's twelve million if you made $12 million if you made two free throws in a row. <laughs> That'd be a tough one. That'd be a tough one. Three, I'd get 20. I get you. Um, next one, Bogues and Pro, massive ups for the podcast. To say that honesty is refreshing, doesn't begin to do it justice. Can't bring myself to listen to any other dog shit ones anymore. Got a bit of an old-fashioned pub debate for you. This is an NBL one pro, so you might not be able to chime yep. in. Chime in, But um, with the Jack Jumpers, which is a new Tasmanian franchise coming into the NBL next season, pretend you're tasked with putting together their roster for next season. Give us your five Aussie players that you're targeting, poaching, and why. Also throw out some realistic import options for a laugh. Cheers. Keep up the good work. Matt from Geraldton. So for me... I mean, I'm going after two guys that aren't even imports. Matt Delavadova, if he's ready to come back to Australia, which which could be on the cards from what I hear, um, with his health issues and whatnot, probably could do better with a, a lighter schedule. He will try to obviously stay in the NBA if he can, but it could be an option. I'd go after him, throw the house at him, and Nick Kay would, would be my other guy. Um, really good culture guys. Both of those guys will get your, your new club on the right page. The problem is... I think Larry owns that team still, <laughs> so he's writing the checks and he needs to <laughs> front up a pretty big briefcase for those two guys. Um, as far as imports go, I mean, it, it, who knows who's out there? I mean, Bryce Cotton's a free agent in a couple of years. That'd be a potential target. Um, but I think Nick Kay and Delva Dover and then just filling in some role players. I like guys like, you know, Clint Steindl's towards the end of his career, really good shooter. Um, even Chris Goulding, who's a potential free agent um, the next couple of years, I think maybe the next season, who's with Melbourne United. he's He's got some Tasmanian influence. I think he might have been born there to, and lived there at a very young age. So that'd be my guys. But Nick Kay and Matt Delavadova, um, I'd go after both of those guys. I think if you even get just one of them, you're in pretty good stead culturally. So pro, you don't have to answer that one. We'll go on to the next one. Hey, guys, I'm Charlie from Ballarat. Absolutely loving the podcast. Question for Andrew and Mike. I remember you on the project. So the Project Pro is like a talk show, kind of political, half political, half comedy talk show that tries to make it fun. It's on like seven o'clock at night. Carrie Bickmore questioned you about checking out celebrities you see at the games to which you replied, I don't really care. I would rather hang out with the working class, <laughs> which I really love. Oh Anyway, did that type of attitude make you an outcast in the NBA? So, so it didn't. No, not really. I mean, I just did my own thing. I wasn't really a, a guy that um, that enjoyed going to celeb parties. I got invited to some of them, uh, Playboy Mansion and all that fun stuff. I just never really cared about going to those things because I just felt like just felt like it was so fake. It wasn't um, it wasn't a let your hair down type event. It was a look at me, look who I'm with, look what I drive, look how much money I have, look at my watch. And I didn't really. I have I have some of those nice things. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not about kind of interacting with people based on that. So I, I felt it was real shallow, and I kind of stayed away from it. Um, and I don't know if you remember Pro, but I'd, I'd hang out with you. Got, I'd hang out with you a lot on when I was in Dallas and and, yeah. the, and the coaches. I just I just enjoyed hanging out with kind of what would be perceived as the regular Joes of the NBA, assistant coaches and trainers and masseuses and, and those kind of people for the most part, just because it was 
it was just more – I felt it was more genuine um, at times. Not to say there aren't NBA players that are genuine, but, it, you know, I just I just wasn't into the whole going to the hottest nightclub in town, the hottest restaurant, and, and having my face seen. I just wanted to get a good meal with good people where I could talk shit. And Pro was one of those people. Yeah, yeah. I remember you, me, Harrison, you know, we would do – we would go out a little bit. And, yeah, sometimes it's better, you know, to do – to go out with just like, you know, regular guys that are just going to talk shit, be real – you know, I saw some of those like interactions be not all of them, but like interactions between NBA players and like, you know, big celebrities. And it's like the celebrity just wants to be seen with the player. The player just wants to be seen with the celebrity. They don't have a lot to talk about, you know, and it's just sort of like a, an awkward deal anyway. You know, and you really get good conversation. It's not real. It's, you, you know, it's usually not great. Hey, man, how's your yeah. family? Everything uh, good? You good? How's your family? Oh, yeah. How's yeah. your family again? Yeah, you're good. All right, man. See you next time. <laughs> That's a conversation. Yeah. It's literally Groundhog Day, you know, and, and the whole conversation. It's like, you know, 20, like, it's on like a 30-second loop, you know, going on for three hours. But I don't know. It is what it is. I, I, I like the regular people. I'm not a big celebrity guy. Like, I don't like hanging out with, you know, I just like hanging out with regular people. But it, it's different, man. I'm a fucking nobody. You know, you're an NBA player. You know, your, your sort of options were a little different than mine, what I could have done. But um, give me an IHOP or a Sonic and I'll be all right. I don't need to be hanging out with you fools at 3 <laughs> o'clock in the morning at some club. Yeah, I mean, each to their own. But yeah, that was kind of. Um, I grew up obviously in the in the working class as well, so that what that would be kind of you know to answer your question, Charlie. That would be why I kind of like coming home and just being, I guess, being a relative nobody. I felt like a nobody with those people because, or an everyday person. I didn't feel like I was Andrew Bogut, the basketball player, when I came home. So I really appreciated that at times because you know the bubble that you're in in the NBA can kind of fool you at times but um next one not exactly a basketball fan but follow you for your no bullshit attitude and your political views have you have been loving the podcasts and i wondered if you had been kicked out of the 2004 olympic team by basketball australia you said you said you would have stopped playing for australia would that have been it from natural national team duties or would you have sought to represent the croatian national team throughout your career cheers tom from adelaide so pro in my um my journey, episode five, I spoke about kind of a running I had with a player on the court during a game, during the Olympics, and and then there was a, a bit of backlash after that because I was 19 and hot-headed and whatnot, and um, I thought I was going to get booted at one point. <laughs> I didn't. Shocker. And um, I mentioned that, you know, I had a kind of a, a chip on my shoulder with basketball in Australia as a game and, and as development and, and never was in kind of the good teams, always was labeled with, as a hothead and whatnot. So I kind of always had a sour taste in my mouth with with the game here and the way it was ran. And yeah, I kind of mentioned that, look, if I was booted off that team, God knows what could happen. You know, I'm, I was young and dumb at that point, you know, very emotional, very aggressive. So yeah, I probably would have went crazy and rogue and done some stupid things that I regretted. And it could, you know, most likely would have been the last time I played for for my country, which would have really hurt me down the line when I really thought about it. But you know how you are when you're young and stupid. You, you make decisions that aren't probably the smartest and you're not thinking straight. And thankfully that didn't happen and, and Basketball Australia, you know, saw the light. And, and the reason why I reference this question is because we now see this with Ben Simmons. Um, you know, it's a similar thing that's happened where he didn't make the 2014 World Championship team. 
he he was one of the last cuts because he was he was still young, emotional. I guess the coach thought, look, I'd rather have a guy that's twelfth man on the roster that's not going to cause me issues. We don't really know if if Ben's capable of of being a role player right now as a young kid because he, he obviously wants to play, which you commend him for. But he's the man on all the teams he's been for been on. So as a coach, he made the decision: I'm going to hire, I'm going to sign a veteran that 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 will buy into zero minutes if needed, and that's proved to be a huge factor for the national team because Ben Simmons um, has not suited up since then and you know there, there is a conversation sometimes around young talent with national teams and sometimes playing the long game and we now have a similar situation funnily enough we have a really good import here by the name of Bryce Cotton plays for the Perth Wildcats and he's uh, rumored to be nat- naturalized within the next two or three months and could potentially play and play for our national team coming you know you know mid 2021 with with the, the Australian boomers in Japan for the Olympics but there's another kid named um, Mathise Feibel who has who's a naturalized Australian as well per FIBA rules I believe you can only have one naturalized player in your team for for you know whatever country you are you can have a nat- one naturalized guy because otherwise some countries you know will stack their team with Americans that are nat- naturalized so the question ah. the question is do you put in Bryce Cotton who's you know he's a gunner he can score he can get you a bucket similar to Patty Mills's role so kind of similar to that extent or do you put in Thibel and my no-brainer for me is Thibel. Like um, Bryce is a fantastic player. He's the best import in the NBL, probably the best scorer in the NBL right now by far. I don't think you want to alienate a young kid that's going to give you 10 to 15 years. I think Bryce is late 20s, I believe. So, you know, maybe it gives you one or two good campaigns. So this is a prime example of a strategic move that you need to make where even if you think Bryce is the better f- better fit and can give you a little bit more, I think you have to take Thibel, um where he can help, but for longevity in the long game. What do you think, bro? Well, the first thing I would do is talk to the kid and say, look, here's what we're doing. I mean, here's what we're here's the situation that we're in. How would you feel about if we did make this move? First off, not that we're going to make it, but we need to know what you think. This is really important. You know, obviously this guy could really help us. You could help us as well. We want you in the future for sure. You know, maybe you don't have that conversation because you're going to blow it right there. But I would probably fill it out first and have a face-to-face. Um, I know how important it is our national team stuff. I know how important they take it. I know how trying to be in a position, putting yourself in a position to medal is, you know, it, it goes a long way, you know, for country pride, for just ego, for national pride, for international pride. And it's not an easy decision. But – you want those young players to stay in your program for a long time. But here's another thing, Bogues. What if, what if you do make this decision? Cotton's out, he's in, and then he decides, you know, to blow it off because, you know, he doesn't want to get hurt or injured. Maybe he doesn't do it this time, but maybe he does it in another event. Maybe he does it down the line. I mean, I don't know. It's hard because, again, national team's such a, as you know, is such a, uh, you know, it's such a, sensitive subject and trying and being in position if this guy if cotton's going to put you in position because i know bryce he played at uh, providence you know he's a um he's a hell of a player especially internationally um it'll be tough for me to be honest to make that decision i don't think it's a no-brainer but you're closer to the situation than i am i, I would probably talk to the kid first but i would i would probably take the guy that's going to help me right now because it might it, the kid might get pissed for a year 
but I think you have a long time to try to mend that relationship. But I don't think you do it without talking to the kid first. You know, I think you talk to him and you fail him out and yeah, you tell him how gonna, important he is. Hate to cut you off. The kid's not going to say, I'm not going to play for you ever again in that meeting. <laughs> He's not going to say, fuck yeah. that, that's bullshit. So I'm looking at yeah. more when you look at Ben Simmons and using that yeah. as a relative example, it's been seven years since he's played for our national team. So, you know, you look at yeah. that and you're like, oof, like, let's say, let's say, you know, Ben Simmons is the best Australian basketball in the world right now. Um, sure. Thibault would be top five best Australian right now and can potentially has, can catch, you know, be the clear number two to Ben. So, do you run yeah. that risk of, of alienating a guy like that? Because I just don't believe, you know, you sit him down and you say, well, look, you know, we, we Bryce, We'll get a bit more out of Bryce because we need that scoring punch. But, you know, we'll, we'll, you'll be there for the next campaign. The kid's going to say, great, thank you, I appreciate it. And then you're going to get an invite next year and you might not play for six years like Ben. That's kind of my case study for it. I'm not saying sure. he'd, I'm not saying he'd do that. But I think as a whole, it could be a strategic play to kind of solidify him for your national team for 10 or 15 years. How do you think they're going to do Bogues, in your opinion, how, how, uh, with, with or without this kid? I'm saying, like, how do you think the Australian team's going to have a, you know, forget about COVID and all that. Mm. I'm just saying, like, basketball, pure basketball, how do you think they're going to fare in the, in the next Olympics? Are they going to suck because I'm not playing? Come on, bro. And no shit. No, no doubt. I think they'll be fine. No I doubt think, of us. I think they'll be fine. I think the international game – we're right there with anybody, but the room for error is so small. It's not a seven-game series, not a five-game series, not a three-game series. It's one one game can completely fuck you over for the whole tournament. And that's the beauty of international basketball, whether you like it or not. And that's why the US is beatable because they can have a game where they foul trouble, injury, ball, they can't throw the ball in an ocean, right? And they can't hit a three ball, whatever. Yeah. So that's the beauty of it. And our, our room for error is as small as anybody's, but I think we're right there. We're, we're, we're a top four team as per the rankings say. I think we're third right now. Um, so I think we have an opportunity, but you know it's going to take a lot of buying. We need a young guy to step up. I think a Jock Landale who's playing really well right now in the NBL. It's going to take a guy like that to give us a bit more than our younger guys have given us the last couple of years, which is it's welcoming someone, but you still got the good mix of Patty. Joey's having a great year. Aaron Baines has been down a little bit. Um, hasn't played a lot in and out of the lineup. He's up and down like a yo-yo, so hopefully he can get some form. But it's going to be it's going to go as far as essentially Patty's the main scorer, um, Joey's playmaking, and and Aaron Baines' ability to to be that workhorse inside. Delhi's going to play some vital minutes. Can Ben can and will Ben play? That's that's the other conversation we have. Where does he fit in? Does that then move Delavadova to the bench? Because I don't think you can play Delhi and, and Ben together because it takes away from no. So you're probably going to have to start Ben at the one slash one slash four man when it gets to half court offense where he's in the dunker and playing inside a little bit. Because um, internationally, you, you know, you think it's bad in the NBA picking on guys that can't shoot. And internationally, it's even worse. Oh, like, you know, God, yeah. Because there's no defensive three seconds, right? So you can you can literally just stand on the basket. So they got to figure that out, which is why I don't believe Daly will start next to him. I don't think that lineup will work. Um, the way I see, if I had to pick a starting lineup and everyone played, you'd have you'd have Ben, um, you'd have Patty, you'd have Joey. You'd have Baines and that four spot's the one that's open for me. Jock Landale, I think, will probably probably get that four spot. But then you, you factor in Thibel, who can play the three four. I mean, I like our squad. Mm -hmm. I think it's well balanced. It can be a one through five switching team at times. But like I said, it's it's that knife's edge of you know one bad game, which we had in 2016. We had one bad game 
in the in the semis, which would have got us to the gold medal game. And I think we scored. I think we had sixteen points at halftime. Like we just could not score. Like it was it was the game was basically over. It was forty to sixteen or something, and they they smacked us. Serbia did. Yeah, and that's the thing too with Bryce Cotton versus Thibault, right? Like the shooting button, yeah. and. Yeah, and he like imagine him and Patty on the court together. It'll be a tough thing. I'm always where like especially if a guy's early in his career that yeah you might miss out on one Olympics, but like if this is your time and like your guys right now four years from now a lot of the guys that would make an impact now won't make an impact in four years and like it won't may not even matter next Olympics. Where if you yeah. could do it now and you can get Bryce Cotton, I'd probably do Cotton and take the chance at, say, trying to get this kid back and maybe have to miss an Olympics. But I was probably, to me, worth it. But you got a hell of a squad. And I always like watching Australia because it's tough. It's entertaining. Um, there's always, you know, it's good basketball. The ball moves. You know, it'd, it'd be interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, in worst case, if you don't take um, Fireball, you just fire the coach and blame him for it. <laughs> just say, hey, man, oh, we, shit, is that what it is? Yeah, we, yeah, we picked on you. Coach picked on me. Yeah, we wanted yeah. you, but the coach didn't want to pick you. We told him to pick you. <laughs> Might salvage that relationship. Yeah. To the, we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm excited to, to, to see how they got Olympics. So it'll be it'll be um, a fun thing to watch. Next one, yeah. we have Hey Bogues, firstly, huge fan of the podcast and pro, great storytellers. Question is, over your basketball career, how did you deal with the low times and – and when you were out with an injury, um, but when you were when you were feeling fit and healthy, but the form consistency just wasn't there. I imagine it must must be fairly hard, as well as in your profession, from you're under a microscope. So pulling yourself up could be even harder. How important is mental strength? And that's from Daza Chan in, in Hong Kong. So hope everything's going well oh, wow. in Hong Kong. Um, great question. Nice. You know, a, a lot of a pro athlete's career, a lot of basketball career, a lot of the battle is mental, especially when you've dealt with injury. Um, like I have, I think bouncing back from that at times, I did a fantastic job. At times, I didn't. At times, I struggled. Um, at times, I, you know, would come back from from a broken ankle or an arm and be overthinking how sore and how painful it is and flexibility and all oh, my touch isn't there. And, and then it messes with your head. It's it's just human nature. So I had to kind of rework and rewire your brain at times with that. And that's just a part of the part of the battle. Some guys don't really go through it at all like that. Some guys, it can end your career. I've seen it in players' careers. The mental battle was lost and they just retired or sailed off into the sunset so yeah i think it, i think it is very very hard we are under a microscope i think the hardest part with an injury especially when it happens in season i struggled with in-season injuries or missing time in season is because um everyone's asking like what's going on when are you back when are you back what's going on the media is kind of oh we heard it's it's improved we heard it's, it's there's been a setback and, and then that just adds pressure on your rehab um whereas i think i felt way better rehab and stuff in the off season where I could just lock myself in the gym, physio, trainer, cold tub, you know, weight room and just go by my own time and get my get my body right. Whereas in season, you always felt like I want to come back tomorrow, I want to come back tomorrow. And that's kind of a mindset that can somewhat hurt you. And that's why you sometimes see players, you know, not a lot of them do this, do it for that reason. A lot of them do it to just get away and just do their own thing, but to, just to disconnect from the team a little bit for your own mental well-being because, you know, it is a dog-eat-dog world and sometimes even your own teammates are questioning, shit, is he really that hurt, man? How is he not back? I had that ankle sprain. It took me two weeks or, or vice versa. So um, the mental battle, pro, I think is is what? What would you – well, a percentage factor, percentage scale, what would you factor it as, as uh, being vital in the NBA? I'd say 85 to 90 because I, yeah. I think with the medical teams in the NBA, they probably get you right. And unless you're an unskilled player – that is a hundred percent physical 
and then you like micro fracture or something like that, God forbid, and you can't like you don't have that athletic ability and then everything else goes to shit. Most players, it's a mental thing. Um, they don't like it. They're used to playing at mostly 100 percent. And then if they can't do the things they can do and it takes some time, you know, they're out of the lineup. It, it takes a lot of mental toll because a lot of players don't deal with that adversity, you know, especially physical up to that point. And it's a new thing. And, you know, other players might have success that were below them in the, in the depth shot and now they're playing really well. And now they have to come back um, and they got to deal with it. And look, no player has fun playing in pain, you know, even after a surgery or after a rehab and it still hurts, you know, it's, it's a mental thing and you got to deal with it and it's not easy. And then the million other things you got to deal with. Um, I would say it's mostly mental. Um, it's a really tough thing. Like you said, there's a million people asking you questions. There are whispers about, Hey, is this guy really hurt versus if this guy's not really hurt? I always thought it was funny when a couple of different guys would get hurt. One guy will be like, Oh man, he's battling through. He's fine. I mean, he, you know, I don't know. And then another guy will be, gets hurt and will be like, yeah, he's faking. He ain't fucking hurt. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> you just told me this guy's like, like, this guy's like the fucking gladiator, you know, and he's like battling through. But this guy has an injury, legit, supposedly, and I would assume it is. And now you're fucking telling me he's faking. Now there are players that sort of milk it, no question. But it is a mental, it is a mental hurdle that, not a lot, of, especially if you're just facing adversity for the first time. Like your first major injury, Bogues, that must have been devastating for you because you probably never had to deal with something like that. No, no, yeah, def definitely. And and well, I've been on record saying it. It was my career year, so <laughs> it was. Yeah, like, my arrow was going up from my rookie year. It was like I think I was nine and seven my rookie year. Then I was fourteen and ten, and then I was averaging double double three four straight seasons, and then. 2009-10, it felt like much, everything just came together with my game. I started to be much more consistent on an early basis. I um, was really learning how to defend. Like Everything just was, was felt like, oh, it's finally clicking together, right? Um, and then, bang, that happened. And that was, you know, it was essentially a 12-month setback to, to get back to, to decent basketball and then another probably, probably two years all up just to get a relative decent, for, you know, amount of flexibility to shoot the ball. But... Yeah, it's, it's it's just an interesting one. What percentage, I guess, of the of the game, injuries aside, do you think is mental these days with with at least the NBA or professional sports? I would I would say the game's eighty percent mental mm. because it's so close, folks. Like you, you see so many great players with great talent, not even great players, but players with great talent that mentally just can't put it together. They don't have the work ethic. They are uncoachable. They are injury prone. They are, they've got some wart that they can't get over. And it's usually an upbringing thing. It's usually like hard to coach. It's usually had a circle of people that never said no to him. And now you, you got to try to deal with that when he gets into the NBA and he's not as good as you think. Because there are so many players we drafted or, or took in Dallas or other places that had unbelievable talent, but couldn't get places on time. Could, was awful teammates, you know, awful off the court, always getting in trouble. Like, it's a mental thing. And that's why, you know, man, I was so lucky to work with, like, Kobe and be around a Dirk and because those guys mentally were so above and beyond everyone else when it comes to dealing with pressure, being prepared, doing the things that they need to do, and being, you know, just being an overall good pro. 
And that's hard, man. You see so many people that can't get jobs, you know, like you see it, like guys coming in the league, you see that they went to three high schools and two, three colleges and fired their agent three times before they even got the training, their first training mm. camp. <laughs> and you know, they're going to be a fucking problem, yeah. but they got this unbelievable talent. And I think the game is about 80% mental because all these guys are good. And the, the NBA level, I would say out of 450 NBA players, I'd say, you know, not everyone's great, don't get me wrong, but I would say there's 410 people that are actual NBA players that, like, are at another level. The last 40, eh, give or take. But, like, you know, and then, like, separating the 110th player from the 45th player is probably that mental edge. You know, it's probably just working a little harder or being a little more coachable or, you know, just getting it. But, yeah, I would say it's about 80% mental. What do you think, folks? You've been yeah, around be a close. lot of It'd different situations. Yeah, I think the, the yeah. talent – I guess all teams think that, you know, you've got a, a knucklehead that's super talented and we can weed out the mental thing. I mean, I think it's almost, you know, the opposite at times. I think the mental thing's an underrated problem and an underrated skill. So, I think it – um yeah, if you don't have that mental toughness, not only from playing basketball or bouncing back from injury, but handling, you know, things off the court. Women are throwing themselves at you. Family members asking for money. That's all part of the mental toughness, right? That can that can eat at you at times, and and that's what people don't understand. There's a lot more than just the mental toughness of like, oh, hitting a big shot at the end of the game. He's mentally tough. It's like no, it's all the other shit you got to block out along the way. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd put it at 75, yeah. 80% for sure. But um, that's, yeah, it's just always an interesting debate with, with the mental toughness stuff. Moving on to the next final question. We were kind of answered half of this one already, but um, which current NBL players have the game and athletic ability to play in the NBA? We've talked about Justinian Jessup as someone who will at some point make it and obvious candidates, other candidates are next stars like Josh Giddy, bigs like Jock Landau, Isaac Humphreys, anyone else catch your eye? And then his second part of the question was regarding Bryce Cotton getting his um, citizenship and Matisse Thibel. So we've already answered that one, Chris Anderson. So circle back if you want to um, hear that again. But I guess the guys with the athleticism, I mean, Jock Landale would have been an NBA player. He would have been a fringe guy uh, somewhere. The COVID thing threw a spanner in the works for, for, for everything and everyone. He, in my opinion, should be on an NBA roster. I think he still has some work to do defensively and I try to help him with that as much as possible. I think that's his his one weakness, but he's really working hard. He's a kid that texts me sometimes, you watch a game, what, what should I be doing? And he'll get better at that. But look, he's shooting the three ball, I think, at 40% this season in the NBL. He's not a volume three-point shooter, but he'll knock down, he'll go one for two, two for three, feet set wide open, can knock it down, does a great job. What really I like about him is he's not the most athletic guy. He has his, his athletic abilities, you know, serviceable. He runs his ass off every possession. They played New Zealand they, and, and pro. They have this kid in New Zealand, a, a veteran. I forgot his first name. Last name's Iverson, big white kid, but big, solid, well put together. Looks like he just came off a farm somewhere. But – I mean, like the first four possessions, like Jock's taken off, make or miss. He's the first one down the court. And this, this poor big kid, man, you just – every time there was a stoppage, he's on his knees and he's he's sucking air, man. So, Jock does a real hold good Hold on. Ho Bogues, hold on. No, no, hold on. He's texting me right now. Pro, what should I do in my next game? Defensively, force your man towards the court decal. <laughs> Done. All right. All set. All set. Yes. Yeah, we ran over that one. Actually, I was in the wrong sheet. We can touch back on that. But yeah, Larry Kesselman might be sending you a cease and desist right now. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, Chuck Landau is my guy. I think he'll I think he'll be 
the next guy from the NBL, Josh Giddies, almost there. He still has a little bit of work to do, but I love his game. Really high basketball IQ. They'd be the two obvious guys. Isaac Humphreys has been there. Didn't really get a good stint in the NBA. Played well in the G League, so maybe he'll go back to that route. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd go Jock and Giddy. But we will go back on the. Details. I'd say Ryan Brokeroff. Yeah, yeah Bro- Brokeroff, Brokeroff, my guy. And then you know, it's not bad. Who could I? I could see like playing in Houston as like their fourteenth guy or something is Tyler Harvey. Oh, you know, a, not he's great. A bucket man, he's a like, he's, could shoot the shit out of shooting it. Shooting logo threes here, like, like it's nothing. Yeah, he's, he's yeah with the, with the Illawarra Hawks. Yeah. And, um, flops a little bit too much and, and draws a lot of fouls that way, so that'll he'll, he'll fit in well in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, he gets to the line. He's a bucket. I like his game. I think they they've they've really done well. I think we the Sydney Kings were looking at him, but um, you know Illawarra got him over the line. So kudos to them. He's, he's having a phenomenal year, and they they've turned. Their- and another guy. Yep. That other question. Well, I'm sorry, folks, but th- when we're talking about imports that you might look at, I would look at um, Yogi Ferro to be honest with you to bring over. Um, Yogi sort of like had a good NBA career, sort of having a hard time getting back in and sticking in. If I was a, if I was a NBL team that had some, you know, had that, you know, what's the, what's sort of the highest paid position a, a, a normal NBL team would have like 300? 350, yeah, 200? Well, yeah, it depends if you're talking on the books or off, I guess these days, but yeah, I mean, yeah. USD, three, 400 USD. So I would, I would at least look. I'm not saying I'm sure a Chinese team. If he's not going to go to the NBA, like a Chinese team or a European team might offer him something. But that's a guy I'd sort of be looking at. But um, I don't know. Just threw it out there. I'm yeah, sorry. Reminds me of Casper Ware a little bit. Who we have in, with Sydney? Same kind of body physique, same kind of game. And I played yeah. with Yogi that year in Dallas when I was with you. So yeah, I mean, I like his game if he's willing to come over. And the problem is, you know, a lot of European teams can offer a few more numbers on that contract. No doubt, it's a matter of are you going to get it, you know? So um, yeah. just, just one of those things. But going back to the decals, I'm going to touch on it real quick. I, I ran over it. Still an issue. They have now gone back to last year's decals. I've received word they're going to go back to, to last year's decals and try those out. Um, so now they're obviously. You know, admitting there's a problem, but they're not. <laughs> it, it's still a shit show. We, we've still got guys slipping all over the place. I don't know if you followed my feeds, uh, Pro, but the NBL had emailed- Oh, that pro- kid? Yeah. No, no, no. The NBL had emailed all clubs and officials um, internally and said, if anyone else comments on the decals, it'll be a fine. So, it's been a huge issue over here because, you know, it's a health and work safety issue where now a lot of players had voiced their concerns on social media, even as far as posting right. clips of them falling over. Um, the NBL has now said they will find guys for doing that. That has now led to the major sponsor with the Sydney Kings or Bryden's Lawyers who <laughs> get this pro. So, Bryden's Lawyers, are they're, they're a law firm that, you know, it's basically a law firm that if, if you hurt yourself, you go to them and they'll chase up someone uh, to, to, to pay you for your fall or whatever. And they're our decal um, at King's Games. They've got, they got a decal on the floor, Bryden's Lawyers. They've, yep. they've reached out to us, to Sydney Kings and said, we don't want our logo on the floor anymore. We're still going to pay the same for sponsorship. But this is yeah. a this is a health and safety issue. We're removing that. We want that decal removed, and we just want regular flooring there. We don't want to. We don't. We'll, we'll pay for that space to be empty. Um, so that's a, wow. a huge precedent set by Brighton's lawyers. I, I wonder if any other sponsors out there are going to follow suit. But that's that's massive, and I think they're they're doing they're far above beyond the duty of call and doing more than the actual league itself is doing. So, like I've said, you know, God forbid. 
someone does their knee, someone does their ankle, um, there's an issue with the decals, it, it needs to be changed. I don't think putting last year's on is going to fix much and I'll continue to, to watch the space, but it's it's becoming a, a national story within itself and Larry is uh, the owner of the league. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's adamant. He's dug, his, dug his heels in and said, I'm not, I'm not removing the decals under any costs. So I will watch that space because it, it is an interesting one. Yeah, maybe the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe would uh, sort of come in and try to try to save things. Who? Sorry? It was a joke. It was Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, uh, the law firm. <laughs> we might have to edit that one out. Um, okay, finishing yeah. off with story time. I'm going to let you – you owe us one because you, uh, sure. you took a roster day off last week. What do you got for us? It, all right, so – I was working with Tim Grover, and we had Kwame Brown as a uh, as a client. And you know, as usual, I like to fuck with all our guys, and it, it was it was the best job I ever had in basketball. It was fantastic. And we were in this little gym before we got the big place, and l- literally the weight room that Grover had to deal with in his fir- in his gym before the big one was probably like at best was like 150 square feet. It was a box. And in the in the storage room where we like had all the drinks and stuff, we had a refrigerator stocked with anything you want to drink. So Kwame, after every workout said he wanted a caffeine fix. So he goes, yo, dog, I wanna, yo, I need my caffeine fix, get me a Sprite. And my eyes lit up because there's no caffeine in Sprite. And like Grover knew I was going to fuck with him. He goes, no, Mike, because we just got him. And he was afraid that he would probably like quit like in a week, like if we were fucking with him like that. Well, he said, you got to wait a couple of weeks before you mess with him. So I said, all right, I'm not going to say a word. I guarantee, I I promise. So every workout he would have, I would bring the Sprite out of the refrigerator and point it where it says caffeine free, right? Staring him in the face is like, I got your caffeine fix for you, dog. Drink up. Every day for about three weeks, and then I st- sort of just stopped it. And all the players would just crack the fuck up because everybody knew there was no, there was no caffeine in Sprite. So, yeah, because yeah. they used to have that. I, big, I don't know. They used to have that big uh, wording on it that said "caffeine free" too, right? I would turn it where that wording would be right in front of them, <laughs> and I just don't think he even noticed whatever. Hey, look, I, I like a good Sprite like eight or nine times a day. I get it, but like. I sort of know that there's no caffeine in it, but yeah, so I like to play that little trick on uh, Kwame, but he was a good dude, man. He was a good client. Well, Kwame, funnily enough, my marketing people early on in my career worked with Kwame as well, and he was- (laughs) <laughs> she told me a story the lady told me a story that they were getting him suits right like a like nice suit and tie he had like four or five yep. sets of it right so he'd do some appearances he's number one pick so he had a lot of hoopla around him when he came to the league before he played a game so he's doing appearances and whatever and then I guess she called him and said you got another appearance here comes picks him up and is like where's your suit like why haven't you, you need to wear a suit for this he goes I've got none left and she's like, what do you mean? He's like, I've got, I got no suits left. Like, where are the ones we got you? Oh, yeah, they're upstairs in my apartment. So he would wear them once and didn't know you had to get them dry cleaned and would just- he Oh. Had, he had a pile uh, in, his, in the corner of his apartment. I and mean, you know, you kind of feel bad, man, for the kid because like, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about wearing suits growing up. So when I got to the league, I, I needed a lot of help. I was wearing kind of, you know, white socks with black shoes, doing all kinds of dumb shit. I didn't know. I knew how to tie a tie from my Catholic school days, but that was it. Like, I didn't know anything about fashion and lapels and all that shit. So, yeah, the poor kid would just have a, he had a pile of clothes, like mountain high, sitting in the corner of his room. <laughs> just would wear them once and just well, I mean, throw them there, you know? Remember, like, yeah. Remember in high school, though, like, you know, and that's the thing that people don't understand when these high school kids come to the NBA. And 
you know, how much of a culture shock it is, like, as far as, like, dealing with your everyday stuff. Oh. You know, because in high school, what, your mom and dad's usually doing most of the stuff for you. You know, like, I'm not even talking about an athlete. I'm just talking about a normal human being. So, it's like, you get to the NBA and then you got practices and games and all this and all this. Sometimes, you know, you go to McDonald's, you get a burger, but you have no fucking idea how the burger gets made in the back. And that's the same thing in real life. Like, you have no idea, like, what what it took for somebody to clean that suit or your mom or dad to do your laundry for you or to do these things for you. Kwame was a great – it was after he was – you know, it was probably like his second deal. I think it was with the Lakers when we had him. but And he was a great dude. But, yeah, I could see – a lot of high school kids, like we had Al Jefferson, and it took them a while, Kendrick Perkins. It takes those guys a while um, to sort of get acclimated to NBA life. Like somebody usually walks them through it, veterans or, you know, their agent finally sets them up with somebody that sort of walks them through some things. But was wow. like, it, it, like, it was shocking <laughs> yeah. to me, dude, like like coming to the league and then uh, renting an apartment and it's like – all right, I need bedding. I need bedding. I need bed sheets. I need pillow sheets. I need cutlery. F- you know, kitchen utensils. I need pots and pans. I need laundry. To- I was just like, holy shit! Like I've, I've come from the AIS to college where we didn't do any of that shit. You, the most you had to do was wash your own kind of your own basket of washing. That was it, and that was hard. It was hard, man. Like I flew yeah. my mom up once to come help, and 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 you kind of once you're professional and you're making that money, it's kind of like you're left. Hey, man, like you figure it out, and you're like, holy shit. So a lot of agencies will hire someone to to live with you for a year or a PA and try to, but you know, some guys never figure it out. Some guys do. I know I've got teammates that I'm not gonna, shall remain nameless, but um, a teammate. In Golden State that still didn't know how to pay his car registration and he's seven, eight years in the league, you know, and that's just, you know, some guys don't need to do it because they have the finance to pay someone and some guys just struggle, you know, with that that daily kind of life of, of everyday, everyday bills and all that kind of stuff. Shit, folks. When I was like 27, I was living with Vin Baker and I barely ever lived away from home at some of that point. I travel a lot, but I never really lived long periods of time away from home. Italian kid. We never move out of our mother's mother's house till we we're about 47. But so like I'm living with Vin Baker and I'm like, you know, my, my room's a little messy that I was staying in. The NBA's guy, an NBA player's guy, which usually isn't like the most steady person in the world, was telling me that I had to clean my shit up. Imagine, imagine like how bad you are in fucking everyday life when an NBA player's guy is telling you that you got to fucking clean the shit up. So I I sort of learned a lot that year, but I can just imagine a high school kid. No, it's hard. It's hard. Well, my story is, is. Similar um, with cleanliness. So apparently, this is from a teammate of mine, Earl Boykins. Back in the day, Chris Birdman Anderson playing for the Denver Nuggets, apparently living in a high-rise apartment in Denver somewhere, like a luxury apartment. He goes and buys a couple of uh, Rottweils or Pitbulls. I can't remember what they were. Buys two dogs, basically. Or two or three, maybe. Anyway, doesn't figure out, you know, I'm going on a road trip in 10 days or you know, five days, whatever it is, and it's a, it's a week-long road trip. So, they go for a road trip, and he's like, shit, who's going to feed my dogs? Don't have all that organized. He goes, all right, I'll just put out a shitload of water and, um, you know, <laughs> seven days seven days worth of food for the dogs, oh. and I should be should be good. And you're like, he's thinking that this dog's going to know what day it is, and that's that's the portion for today, and then that's the portion for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking dog's going to eat all that shit in one day. Anyway- so I think three or four days in, they get a call. Uh, he gets a call from someone um, at the apartment and they're like, hey, you know, something's leaking through your apartment, like through the ceiling. I think there's a leak, you oh, know, no. whatever, whatever, whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, just let yourself in. No worries. The dogs had pissed so much in one spot 
that it was get the yeah, fuck it was out leaking of here. to the the person below and just dripping down. So they thought there was like a burst pipe or like it wasn't a lot, but you know, there's there's drips coming down every every couple of hours. And yeah, Birdman apparently had um <laughs> Oh my god. Seven day road trip. All right. Seven days of food, I'll just spread in different corners of the apartment and shoot we'll we'll be right. I'll just come back and everything will be fine. It's like, mate, like there's gonna be shit and piss everywhere first off. Gonna eat all the food in one day, but um, yeah, it just goes to a learning, learning curve for uh, for old Birdman. Um, maybe you can nickname him Bird Dog after that, but yeah, Birdman Jeez. had a bit of a struggle there. Not gonna get a sponsorship with the SPCA, I tell you that. Peter. Jeez, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> yeah, Peter. Yeah, shit. But, uh, oh my god, that's a hell. Yeah, I think you figured it out after that. But yeah, that's imagine being below that dude and just having piss dripping on wherever it was your dining table or couch or something, thinking it's just water. And it's just, it's just some dog pissing on the same spot. But um, the fun of Jeez. the NBA. Anyway, Pro, that's our final few minutes. Thanks for joining us again. Ep- episode 11 at Rogue Bogues on all of your uh, social media platforms. Um, you know, Linktree has sure. all the different podcast platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Pro. Thanks, folks. I'll see you next week. <laughs>